this episode, Justice League America number 33 and Justice League Europe number 9. Cover dated December 1989. Hello, and welcome to the 33rd episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I am your host, but I'm not doing this alone, thankfully. Uh, I'll be joined by two friends to help cover these issues. We'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later. But for now, my first co-host today is a returning guest to the JLI Podcast. This comics professional is the amazingly talented author of the young adult adventure series The Only Living Girl and The Only Living Boy, plus the werewolf western series, yeah, I said werewolf western, called High Moon, and the recent video game Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Brain. Breakpoint. Plus, he's done work for DC Comics, including the Green Lantern Corps, Marvel Comics, Image Comics, and many more. Finally, he's a podcaster himself. Now, here's the dirt, folks. This is what the official biography pieces won't tell you about this guy. He also has an unhealthy obsession with Saturday morning cartoons, the Marvel TSR role-playing game from the 1980s, and the Misfits of Science. Now, these also might happen to be reasons why we get along so well. Folks, please help me welcome back to the show Mr. David Gallagher. Welcome to the New York Embassy, David. Thanks for being here. How you doing, man? I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, did you move the furniture? Well, since we opened the European branch, it's sort of like when you ha- your kids move out and they take half your stuff. We had to move a bunch of stuff over to Europe since you were here last. Oh, man. Because I, like, I really, really like that beanbag chair. Yeah. Uh, Rocket Red was kind of attached to it, so it's over there now. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Sit on the floor, I guess. So, yeah, just make yourself comfortable. Pick a spot. You know, there's couches and stuff, too, if you don't want to sit on the floor. But whatever. You know, hey, you be you, buddy. You be you. All right. Oh, yeah, you guys don't have, like, Jarvis. Can I get, like, Oberon to bring me some tea? Look, I know you interned at Marvel, but you're getting yourself mixed up, buddy, okay? (laughs) In fact, last time you were here, we talked about you interning at Marvel. We talked about your comic book origin story and what's in your comic DNA, which probably led to far too many conversations about Marvel's New Warriors and the Avengers United action figure line, which we didn't spend a lot of time on. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit differently today because, you know, again, we know your history now. We know what you've done. So tell me, and I have an inkling of an idea here, but what is your super superhero passion currently what is driving you and keeping you up far too late at night thinking about superheroes <laughs> well i'm currently passionate as you probably know if you follow my twitter feed on all the non-canon superhero characters from marvel and dc that have appeared in other places like oh yeah you are radio television that have not actually made their way to the comics yet so characters like red claw from batman the animated series or Golden Pharaoh. Woohoo! Uh, woohoo! So I've really become sort of obsessed with that. And, and I love that looking at characters, especially when you think about like characters from shows like Teen Titans or Super Friends, or even some of the characters from like Justice League cartoon, like the Green Guardsman or Tom Turbine. Ah, oh, uh, so good. Even more modern reference characters from like Supergirl, like Alex Danvers. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, sure. Who, who just don't appear in the shows. And what it is that they bring to those shows that they were not able to 
for some reason translate to the comics or vice versa. I'm just very fascinated with that. And really looking at, as, as sort of like a media connoisseur, looking at how some of these characters either were story situational or politically motivated by some sort of larger censor issue. So they're like, an example was Spider-Man, right? Okay. Is that they couldn't use the Sinister Six in the Spider-Man cartoon. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. They could call them the Insidious Six. But they couldn't call them the Sinister oh, Six okay. because of the censors. So looking at some of those characters and, and understanding that, and even going back to like Power Records and looking at like Hydro, the Dehydrinator from the Aquaman Power Records, or <laughs> Mr. Big from The Flash, you know, or Fumo, the Fire Giant from uh, the Metamorpho one. You know, looking at all these characters and, and thinking about, are these guys like really just one-hit wonders or is there some life to them? You know, so that's something that I'm, I'm just really obsessed with in terms of like thinking about how characters live and breathe in, in different mediums. I, I think the DC universe in particular is incredibly elastic and really lends itself more to these sort of interesting, unique characters that I think would be great on the comics page. Like you think about some of the interesting characters from the radio show and how they were just recently able to adapt Superman versus the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, right, right. For the DC Inc. line. But that is the first time that the Atomic Man was in a... I mean, it's not mainstream continuity, but it's the first time the Atomic Man was really in the comics page. Hmm, okay. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. It's just interesting to see how all this stuff plays together. Anyway, that's what I'm obsessed with right now. Well, folks, if you want to hear David breathe life almost quite literally into one of these characters, you've got to listen to the recent Hero Points episode where David role-played and played Golden Pharaoh and gave him a unique personality, which is an absolute hoot. We had a blast with that. And and you, sir, you are now my version of Golden Pharaoh. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. So, yeah, so that's what I'm currently passionate about. By the way, I expect you to submit a spec script to DC Comics anytime now on Mal Havoc from the Super Friends cartoon. I know, man, I love Mal Havoc. And that's... Mal Havoc's a great example of, of one of those characters who's just like, and that Stanley Ralph Ross voice. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, you know, it's just so ominous. Oh, uh, gets me in my heart of hearts. Yes. <laughs> so we've talked about like what you're passionate about. So what are you working on on the publishing side right now? So we just finished the script for Only Living Girl, Volume 3 for uh, Paper Cuts. So that will be out soon. And then our studio is currently working on a series of comics for the Children's Tumor Foundation. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, that really sort of highlight the disease neurofibromatosis. So we've got Kevin Colden, who is an Eisner nominee and a Zirk Grant winner to illustrate a series of of comics. We've worked with Liz Lutham and Steve Ellis to really sort of bring awareness to this rare disorder for Children's Tumor Foundation. So that's been actually really, really fun as the comics industry has kind of slowed down. That's wonderful. Uh, Yeah, so it's really been interesting to bring awareness to this side of, of comics. So it's it's been a lot of fun. So I've been doing that and then working on some secret superhero projects that I will be able to announce soon. Awesome. Uh, Can't wait. Yeah, but yeah, but it's been a lot of fun just constantly working on um, new, unique things. And our studio is doing some role-playing game stuff that I can't talk about yet, but I think it will be really fun. One I think I can talk about in the Marvel TSR, what is it called? The Unofficial Canon Project? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a Facebook group, guys. It's fantastic. They create new source books. I mean, of course, they're unofficial. TSR is not publishing them, but they're fan-created source books for the Marvel role-playing game. 
and you just worked on a new Warriors one. I did. I served as the consultant for the new Warriors one. And then I previously wrote the one about the Winter Guard, which is the Marvel superhero team. Those two teams I have a lot of fondness for. So uh, You wrote the Winter Guard in a comic too. So after I wrote the Winter Guard in a comic, a few years later, the people from the Marvel Unofficial Canon Project were like, would you like to write our unofficial source book? And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> and, I, and I'm currently running a Marvel Winter Guard game for oh. my, my gaming group. Yeah, That's so awesome. We just played yesterday. They were on uh, Monster Island. Oh, so good. They fought Plant Man and Quicksand. And then last episode, they fought Alpha Flight. But you can't fight Alpha Flight. They're like the best heroes ever. You can't fight against them. Well, oh, it's Marvel. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Marvel. <laughs> yeah, so it was a lot of fun. I think it was right around Canada Day, too. So, Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, so so much of role-playing games inspired my love of comics. And I think about how my gateway into understanding comics was a lot of the source books from like Mayfair and from Marvel that gave me histories of characters like the New Warriors and what was the Winter Guard and, you know, Green Lantern Corps. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that one specifically because I wanted to talk about one of your books that you wrote a while back that is still fantastic. It's specifically Convergence Green Lantern Corps. And in that series, it was a two-issue miniseries, you and Steve Ellis got a chance to work with Guy Gardner. Now, the interesting thing is, folks, if you don't remember Convergence the way it was, is all, all the different universes DC has destroyed in the past come back and they pick up right where they left off so in this storyline we get to see Guy Gardner right immediately after Crisis on Infinite Earths I guess number 10 or whatever so it picks up for you know one year later living under the dome that kind of storyline so you got to play with Guy Gardner post-crisis uh, before JLI era so uh, just wondering how did you approach writing that version of Guy Gardner versus like what he would become in the JLI yeah I think that the guidelines we were given for working on the book was, was that he had to be plucked from from like between issue 180 and 181. Oh, wow. Because I was thinking 190, was it 195? That was what Crisis crossover with him on the cover or whatever? Yeah. And yeah, so some of those elements retroactively we we worked in. Mm -hmm. But literally when you read those issues where he is still in the hospital drooling on himself before the Guardians wake him up from his coma, Mm -hmm. Convergence literally plucks him out of time. Uh, okay. One year later, restores his memory and then tells a story. So uh, one of the interesting things about writing Guy from just before he like really joined the JLI is that he's still sort of this mix of his Silver Age self. And despite all the guff and bravado, one of the things I, I liked about Guy from this era is that he's still ostensibly a good human being. Mm-hmm. I think some of that gets lost as we go further and further into JLI and then into Guy Gardner Warrior. I think that that core principle of him being a a decent human being. I think people start treating him abusively and then he becomes more abusive back. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's my take on him. (laughs) I I don't think you're wrong. I think maybe Bo Smith tried to course correct that to some extent and bring back some of the old guy, but maybe that's me just remembering it fondly. I I haven't reread him in a long time. I I think that when you, you get to Guy Gardner Warrior, 
I think, is when he opens up Boyer's and ends yeah. up confronting Sinestro and wearing the yellow power ring. I think that you definitely get a really nice arc, I, I think unintentionally, that really sort of does course correct Guy. But yeah, but for a while, I think that people were just like, he's the obnoxious GL. But I think that there's so many layers to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that Ice, once he starts to build that romance with Ice, you can see he can kind of, I, I was trying to avoid the thaw uh, reference. <laughs> But I I can't. But he he does. He he thaws, and so I think she really reminds him of what a good person he was, and and still is. And I think that in a way, one of the things I love about Guy, especially when we first see him, is that he does all the wrong things, but all for all the right reasons. Hmm. You know. Okay. And I, I think that uh, I don't remember the issue offhand, but he's like trying to round up all of like Green Lantern's bad guys. Okay. And, and, and I'm like, I think it's Green Lantern 200, like 195-200 era. And yeah, and he's just like so confrontational with Hal. What I'm reminded of, what I was reminded of writing Guy in Convergence is that Guy's behavior is one of Hal's, Hal Jordan's greatest mistakes. That's true, yeah. Guy is the way he is because of Hal's inability to see beyond himself. So for those who don't know, Guy Gardner was going to be chosen with Hal Jordan as one of the Green Lanterns. Hal just happened to be closer to the ring. So the ring chose Hal instead. But had it chosen Guy Gardner, there were uh, there were issues that the Green Lantern comics of the 70s really spotlighted, like what would happen to Guy Gardner had he gotten the ring in sort of like a cool what-if scenario. And when Hal Jordan learns this information, he and Guy kind of become friends. They're kind of friendly. They become friends. They pal around. And I want to say it's Green Lantern. I don't remember the issue offhand, but it's before 122, 123. But in in a couple of the issues, earlier issues, after Guy and Hal become friends, Hal goes off in space because there's something wrong with his, his ring. And Guy substitutes for him. And Guy and Green Arrow sort of team up to battle this giant floating eye in space while Hal's out talking to the Guardians about the ring, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think that that's the first time Guy has Green Arrow's famous chili. (laughs) (laughs) It's a life changer. It is a life changer. Anyway, after that, uh, after eating the chili, you know, Guy goes to recharge the power ring and gets disintegrated. And then Hal comes back and sees that Guy Gardner's been disintegrated. And he's like, it's all my fault. There's nothing anybody can ever do to save Guy Gardner. Right. Like, there's nothing anybody can ever do? Ever? (laughs) Ever? And then in the following issues, because he feels so guilty and heart like heart-wrenchingly bad, Hal Jordan like tries to look for Guy Gardner's next of kin, doesn't find them, but instead finds Guy Gardner's fiance and then begins a romance with her. Hal Jordan is the worst. He's the worst. So a lot of those things, when, when Guy is eventually saved from the Phantom Zone and later Quard, where he is tortured and lobotomized, he, uh, he, he is then later put into a hospital where he is brain dead. He's, a, he's just brain dead and just kind of like sitting there, like muttering and stuttering until right around 180, 181, where slowly the story starts to pick up and Guy Gardner is like folded into the events of Crisis on Infinite Earth. So what I really wanted to do when I was dealing with Guy was deal with the elements of PTSD and, and being comatose and how 
how they have an impact on Guy's cognitive uh, recollection and his cognitive memory and his behavior and his impulsivity. So I really wanted to take those elements that I, that I think we saw in JLI and really build sort of a bridge that sort of helped rationalize and, and sort of create a pathway for readers to understand why Guy could be the way that he is. I think you really did that. I mean, you gave him uh, therapy sessions where he's talking to a therapist. You had him dealing with these issues. And by the end, he had a chance to sort of have some resolution and some closure on some of these things. In fact, he did a little bit of a one punch with Hal Jordan, in fact, to help him sort of work through his traumas. I I think it was incredibly effective. I I love that series, man. Well, thank you so much. It was was a lot of fun. I hope I get to write Guy Gardner again because he absolutely is, is the kind of character I love writing the most. Kind of irrationally heroic. <laughs> well, we all support you in that and hope you get a chance to write them as well. Well, I don't think Convergence Green Lantern Corps is available as a trade paperback at the moment, but you can certainly find the back issues. You can pick up the collected editions uh, in various places, and you can uh, read it on the DC Universe app. But speaking of collected editions, before we get too much further, we should probably thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to bring briefly discuss from the in-stock trades library. Usually it's going to be tied into this month's JLI issue in some way or shape or form. Now I picked for this time Green Lantern Corps hardcover volume one, Beware Their Power. Now this collects Green Lantern Corps 207 to 215 and tales the Green Lantern Corps annual number two. This is shortly after Crisis of Earth when the Green Lantern Corps has sort of uh, consolidated down to just a handful of folks and they're living on Earth in sort of a uh, the real world situation in a beach house. But the reason I specifically picked it is because it has got some great issues with Kilowog in it that were actually my introduction to the Green Lantern Corps comics. I saw these gorgeous covers with Kilowog in sort of Soviet Union propaganda artwork, you know, guiding the people and building the rocket red armors. And I thought, this is really engaging. So I picked up some of those, and that's where my love of Kilowog first started with these issues. So you can pick up this uh, collection. It's 264 pages. The majority of it is Steve Engelhart and Joe Staten, and then they stuck in some backup story from some hack named Alan Moore. I don't even know who this guy is. Anyway, it's full color. Normally retails for $39.99, but you can get it for 42% off, so it's only $23.19. And it is a fun, fun collection. So I highly recommend Green Lantern Core Hardcover Volume 1, Beware Their Power. Now, David, did you happen to bring a in-stock trade selection as well? All the cool kids do, but... Yes, in fact, I did. But one of the things I want to mention about your pick, not only is it outstanding, I own all those issues individually, but because uh, you're mentioning Kilowog with the cool propaganda posters holding oh, the Russian so flag, good. Mm-hmm. That was the first time in my recollection that I'd ever heard the term Red Lanterns used. Ah. Because what happens is Kilowog, I think, is it has the flag or whatever, and Guy Gardner's like, listen, you Red Lantern, whatever he says. <laughs> and, you know, like, and, and I think he's really using it as like a, a euphemism for communists. Oh, sure, sure, like, sure. Uh, yeah. But I was like, oh, Red Lanterns. I wonder if that's where Jeff Jones got it. Hmm. Oh, goodness. I don't want to go down that path. (laughs) (laughs) A little joke. But not to be outdone by the sinister Shag Matthews, my pick. You can't say sinister, it's insidious. Oh, not to be outdone by the insidious Shag Matthews, (laughs) my pick is Green Lantern, the Silver Age Omnibus Hardcover Volume 1. 
a dying alien, a fearless test pilot, a ring of nearly a limitless power, and a solemn vow to battle evil wherever it may be found. So begins one of the comic's greatest sagas and one of the medium's most enduring heroes, the story of Green Lantern of Sector 2814. You guys know him as Hal Jordan, whatever. And these stories <laughs> from Showcase 22 to 24 in Green Lantern 1 through 35, we actually get set up for the Green Lantern Corps. All the stuff that we really need to really understand the heart of the Green Lantern mythos starts here with Sinestro, the Weaponers of Cord, Sonar, Star Sapphire, and more. It's um, amazing. John Broom, Garner Fox, Gil Kane, stunning cover by the late, great Darwin Cook. Mm. Um, it was a 99 a $99. Your in-stock trade price is $57.99, where you save a whopping 42% off. And it is outstanding. A really great looks so amazing on your bookcase. Perfect companion to something like The New Frontier. I mean, I, I think people should absolutely pick this up. Oh, absolutely. Some amazing stories in there. And the Darwin Cook cover, as you said, and, and, and I didn't think about the parallels to New Frontier, but yeah, what a, what a great companion piece that would be to that one. So good. So good. Well, folks, uh, for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support. Because, you know, running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services. And we launched the Patreon last year, and you folks really, really stepped up to help us keep the network going. And I can truly say, without your help, the network wouldn't still be here. So if you're enjoying the JLive podcast, folks, please consider uh, going out to our Patreon, which is Patreon.com slash FWPodcast, and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network. And at certain tiers, you'll even get recognized in your show of choice, uh, like these folks. Our thanks go out to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Rudy Castillo, and Sean Ross. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And I'm not only a co-host, I am also a Patreon supporter. <laughs> well, it's very nice of you to say that. Thank you very much. Sir. I wasn't going to out you like that, but that's very kind. We really, truly appreciate your support. Um, all right, folks, so we want you to go out on the social media, use our hashtag fwpodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on Justice League America number 33. We want to hear your thoughts on Justice League Europe number 9. We want to hear your thoughts on Golden Pharaoh. We need to to hear all of it because it's all about building a community of online JLI fans, folks. So go out there, let us know your thoughts. Now, uh, normally this is the part of the show where we ask the guest how they fell in love with the JLI. Well, go back to May 2018, get in your time machine, and go listen to Justice League International podcast number 19, where David answers all those questions. So, with that, we are going to jump right into this coverage. So, remember, you can go out to our website and see some of the images from these issues. That's firewaterpodcast.com/slash JLI, and you'll get to see a select number of images from these comics. In case you can't seem to dig them out of your parents' garage or you, for whatever reason, you don't have a way to look at it on the internet because you're just broken inside. I don't know. But folks, we're going to help you because you can't seem to help yourself. All right, folks, we're going to talk about Justice League America number 33 from DC Comics, cover dated December 1989. It was on the shelves October 17th, 1989. Cover price is $1 for Shining Quarters. And the cover is gorgeously illustrated by Adam Hughes. David, why don't you describe the cover for us? So on this gorgeous cover, what we we see our Guy Gardner on the left and Kilowog Bovoxian on the right, and they are arm wrestling while Guy Gardner has his cool power ring tickling the nose of one Mr. Kilowog. <laughs> it is a fantastic cover that we can talk about more in more detail, but I, I really love it. By the way, Kilowog is about to sneeze, so he's like, ah, ah, ah. 
<laughs> you know, so clearly, clearly somebody has thought comedically about this. And, and one of the things that's also nice is like in a very over the top sliced alone kind of way, we watch sweat dripping from Guy Gardner's brow. So it, it's fantastic. Yeah, this is a couple of years uh, after the over the top movie. So I, I've got to imagine that was a little bit of the inspiration here. I do love how Adam Hughes has continued the kind of Kevin McGuire setup that he did years ago when he started the series, which is the covers have whatever you have in the foreground, but the background is just a simple color. You know, no no busy backgrounds. It makes the characters just pop off the page. That blue behind them just makes them pop even more. It's absolutely gorgeous. Now, Guy Gardner arm wrestling. That's an interesting idea because it doesn't actually happen in the comic. But Guy Gardner's arm wrestling someone. Hmm. I feel like I've read this somewhere in a comic, David. I, I feel like I've read an issue, maybe even possibly a cover of a comic with Guy Gardner arm wrestling someone. Is is that a possibility? That is that is true. Uh, that is Guy Gardner arm wrestling Hercules on the cover of Green Lantern Corps Convergence 2 with art by Tony Harris of Starman fame. So was this comic an inspiration for that or did you just come to that on your own or I, I, I dish buddy dish. Well, so I, I, I don't know where Tony got the inspiration for the cover, but the moment that I wanted to have Guy Gardner, it may be subconsciously, but the moment I really wanted to have Guy Gardner arm wrestling Hercules was where we were given a list of things that had to happen in Convergence. Mm-hmm. It's basically like the hero has to defeat the other hero. And it didn't say how. Okay. It just said the hero from one universe has to defeat the hero from the other universe. You should probably specify for the people at home who, which version of Hercules this is. This is not your Avengers Hercules, folks. No, this is Hercules Unbound from the, the 1970 series with Walt Simonson. Woohoo! Uh, really drawing this outstanding character. I think the, the series only lasts maybe 10 issues. It was, it was definitely short-lived. Yeah, but man, I had the action figure from Remco. Oh! I, man, I loved it from because it, it was part of that line with Warlord and Machiste. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Deimos. I love it. So anyway, I had that figure for years. That was the opportunity. It was like when they assigned all the worlds, they were like, Crisis World, David, you've got the Green Lantern Corps. Choose some characters from the Commandiverse that you want to have fight these guys. And I think some people uh, chose like the Atomic Knights. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people chose Commandy. I think everybody was going for Commandy. So I was like, well, well sure. what, <laughs> what characters would I like to use that I think would be really, really fun? And I thought, well, you know, like, I had the Hercules toy. I never had a Commandy toy. (laughs) You know, and I had a Green Lantern toy. So I liked the idea of them fighting together. So that's sort of where I led into. So when we were designing the thing, I wanted to do something that sort of gave uh, sort of a reverse tasks of Hercules, like 12 labors of Hercules sort of thing. But with Guy Gardner, I wanted him to go to all these steps and use sort of like Dirty Pool right? Uh, and, and sort of his intelligence as a phys ed teacher to sort of beat Hercules. And now that was really kind of where I was coming from with it because I thought, well, like Guy Gardner's not going to win in a fight. So he has to be kind of fight, not dirty, but, you know, like he has to be clever. right? And, and so I thought that that was a really good opportunity there. But it reminds me a lot of this fight. I remember reading this issue when I was maybe 14 or something. So maybe like subconsciously influenced the 30 plus year old older me in writing this issue but yeah i mean i don't know what inspired tony to to draw from the cover but i love what he did because it made it feel like very over the top oh yeah Um, 
And I love this cover because it does so much of what the Guy Gardner covers do in, in this series, which is that side profile. Because mm. it's so evocative of the previous Lobo standoff. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you're seeing, and, and later, I want to say in 39, but maybe I'm wrong, where it's Guy Gardner and Ice, and you see these side profiles. So every time you get a Guy Gardner profile, it's really interesting to see how it, it plays against this. And I thought that this was, well, not exactly the way it was with Lobo in terms of posing and posture. I think it, it really is a, an homage to that. Uh, and I can totally see that now that you mention it. Yeah. And I love also how Adam Hughes has worked in even the, the smirk, a Guy Gardner smirk has worked in even on a profile. I'm not sure Man. how he managed to do that. That, but you can see it. Oh. And that smirk is is literally what I love most about Guy is that there is a devil may care attitude about him that is that is reminiscent in a way of like Matt Murdock's Daredevil. They kind of like mm, okay. s- smile as you walk through hell. And this issue, uh, it really has that devil may care attitude throughout it, and uh, it's it's super. In fact, we should get into the issue itself. Let's do that. So, I'm ready. plot is by Keith Giffen, script by J.M. DiMatteis, penciler is Adam Hughes with inker Art Nichols, letter Bob LePan, colorist Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer. Now, the issue itself is called Nitwits, Knuckleheads, and Poozers, which is absolutely awesome. I love that. So, David, why don't you give us a recap of the first half of the comic? All right. So it's a lazy afternoon, and God. Guy Gardner's flying through the air, bored, bored, bored. <laughs> and what I love about this is this is a, just a gorgeous splash page as, as we're going through the issue. And then he sees as he's flying through the air and reminiscing about the Green Lantern Corps and, and all his friends and then laughing at his own jokes up in the sky. It's not a superhero and it is not a bird, but rather it is a plane. <laughs> and Guy decides doing some sort of really buckaroo bonsai kind of thing to scare the bejesus out of the pilots and the passengers. So he, he's literally pranking planes as they go through the air and giving like <laughs> people heart attacks. And then we cut to the headquarters citadel of the Green Lantern Corps, which is just recently been kind of dis- disbanded after a series of events and we see uh, Arisia driving off on her like hot rod little like cool luxury maybe a Ferrari I'm thinking Corvette or Ferrari certainly. Corvette yeah Cor- Corvette maybe and she's saying goodbye to uh, Kilowog who has definitely got this kind of like crestfallen feeling about him where he's definitely like kind of reflecting on his time in the in New Guardians and, and feeling a little bad about maybe he's a jinx and maybe everything's terrible and it, it really sad sack kind of stuff. Yeah. Where all of a sudden you hear a hey poozer and he is smashed through the building by one of our favorite Green Lanterns, <laughs> Guy Gardner, the last great Green Lantern. So uh, those two fight across the landscape. And then we cut to Kui Kui Kui, which has recently been annexed by the Justice League, where we see Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, all stalwart heroes of yore, reflecting on how gorgeous the entire landscape is. And oh, they seem to have a scheme. Unlike their other schemes, definitely (laughs) seem to have one of the best schemes. And there's something here I'll I'll note later, but there's absolutely a a cool pop culture reference that makes my little heart smile. But so here we're, we're reflecting on what will, I think, eventually be one of the most pivotal plot elements of, of Justice League moving forward is Blue Beetle and Booster Gold's sort of scheme here. And so we really got some really nice 
interaction with them as they meet one of the island's natives, Puck, basically taken from a Midsummer Night's Dream. And we really sort of get to understand who Puck is and we're, we're introduced to you know this really peaceful oasis right as... Boom, Kilowog and Guy Gardner go at it and using his best Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Cowabunga, starts <laughs> lunging towards his friend and they are, they're beating each other up with paintings of Hal Jordan and, and, and literally like just tearing the ever-loving snot out of one another. And it's a real great opportunity for Guy and Kilowog to let her rip. We get a little bit of Kilowog's backstory and just an unbelievable, gorgeous artwork as we then cut back to the Peaceful Oasis in a nice little intercut as we learn more about Kui 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 and what Blue Beetle and, and Booster Gold's plan is about maybe opening some sort of co-op venture. I know we really get to learn more about what it is that they want to do as the natives and the locals sort of make a little deal with Booster and Blue Beetle about one of their celebrities, Gavin McCloud. <laughs> I'll take it from here. Oh, and, and, and they sing the Love Boat theme song as we drift out. As you tend to do. Right. So, so we return to the site of the battle between Guy Gardner and Kilowog, and they are exhausted. And these friends high-five each other and celebrate their epic brawl. Kilowog borrows Guy's ring and actually uh, uses it to reconstruct the Green Lantern Citadel building, or the house, using the power of the ring. And then Guy recalls Kilowog's exceptional talent with machines, and an idea blossoms to get the poozer hired by the JLI. Later, Aresia returns, driving her Ferrari, even though she's only 13 years old, only to have the Green Lantern Citadel begin to fall apart around her as Guy Gardner's ring charge begins to wear off. Then we cut to New York where Maxwell Lord does hire Kilowog as the JLI new super fix-it man. And though Guy Gardner has been tasked with explaining to Kilowog how things actually work around the embassy, Kilowog seems to think for some reason that Guy is in charge and that Guy and Ice are getting married and that Maxwell Lord is Guy's assistant. Hmm. (laughs) With with Kilowog hired, Beetle and Booster convince Kilowog to travel with them to Kui Kui Kui. There, the blue and the gold explain their vision of hotels and casinos and water parks and mini-golf and statues of themselves. And Kilowog says he can start working on their project in just six hours. The issue ends with our heroes on the beach being observed by someone from a great distance out at sea. This mysterious figure says, The League. This complicates matters. Damn, why that island? Why now? Doesn't matter. They're here. And I'm going to do everything in my power to get them out. And the camera pulls back with this really gorgeous splash page to reveal it's Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas. And it says, next issue, Aquaman or someone who bears an uncanny resemblance to him. Woof, man, what an issue. This thing is amazing. So tell me, David, what's some thoughts on it? Well, as we get into the issue, one of the things that was posed to me as a question immediately upon reading it, who are the nitwit? Who are the knuckleheads? And who are the poosers? <laughs> so I, Great I, question. I have my guess. Okay. But I'd love to hear what you have to say as somebody I'm co-hosting with. Okay, I will do my best. And I have to say, by the way, the font on the splash page where it says nitwits, knuckleheads, and poosers, each one's in their own sort of uh, distinct font is just absolutely awesome. It just makes that splash page even better. But um, all right, for me, are we going to go one at a time or am I doing all three? Let's do all three and then we can, you do your three. Who's the nitwits? 
Who are the knuckleheads and who are the boosters? Okay, for me, the nitwits got to be Beetle and Booster. That's who I'm thinking for nitwits. Knuckleheads, uh, I think that's actually singular. I think that's probably uh, Guy. And the Poozer, just for me, has to be Kilowog. So where are you coming down on this one? I, I, in fact, am coming down exactly where you've come down on this. There we go. I think all of them, in a way, are... (laughs) I think because it's really those the story of those three. It's really just this primarily just the story of, of Beetle Booster and Guy here. And and to degree Kilowog. So I think Kilowog, even though Poozer means like new recruits in in uh, Green Lantern lingo, I think it also is sort of a note of affection. Well it's sort of like the word smurf. It kind of it comes to mean whatever you need it to in a sentence after a while. All right. That's very poosery of you. <laughs> Hope you have a very poozer day. Exactly. I, I do use poozer in the Green Lantern episode. Poozer? Who are you calling a poozer? Right. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think for me that I, I absolutely follow that that same trail of like nitwits are clearly Beetle and Booster. Like they are like the most get rich quick scheme guys you can imagine. And it's interesting thinking about Blue Beetle because I'm a huge Blue Beetle fan. I, I read the ongoing series when it came out in the 80s. Blue Beetle is so fascinating because he's a super competent, very talented hero. But the moment Booster Gold is involved, he becomes like a dimwit. <laughs> What's the theory of 11? You get a couple of guys together and they start acting like they're 11 years old. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. It's just like, wow. Like, just keep them separated. Don't put them on a team together. They bring out the worst qualities in each other. Now, I got to say, though, you got to point out here, the scheme, which in what we're talking about here is the Kui 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 casino scene. As, as David said, this is quite possibly a defining moment of the JLI run. But this is Beatles' idea. It's not Booster's idea. And it's further proof that uh, that. People have brought up on the show that Booster was rarely the zany idea man, even though after this series, Booster's actually the one who walks away with the worst reputation. (laughs) Well, you know, like Booster's a time traveler, so history has its eye on him. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well played, sir. Well played. So uh, one of my favorite bits is I love Beatles' Jack Benny line. Yes. Uh, I, I love it. Not only is it proof of like Beatles' commitment to the color blue, he's like, look, <laughs> the sky is as blue as Jack Benny's eyes. But what's very funny about this is that Jack Benny had been dead for like 15 years and he was a radio host. Right, exactly. He's a radio. That's why it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> so Beatles' commitment to like vintage pop culture is like, spot on here. But it also... Uh, well, hold on. Before you go further, I got to bring one up that comes immediately after that. So another pop culture reference uh, that Booster throws when Beetle wants to be trusted, uh, Booster says, trust you? Oh, come now, Maynard. Which is a fantastic other <laughs> pop culture reference because that is a reference to Maynard G. Krebs, folks, from the uh, Many Lives of Dobie Gillis, which is a show from the 50s or 60s that was in it was in syndication at this point. I used to watch it growing up in reruns. But the, the key to that is, is that Maynard G. Krebs was played by Bob Denver, who also played Gilligan on a resort tropical island just like where they are there. So calling Blue Beetle Maynard is like a super deep dig that if you weren't paying attention, there's no way you would have got that. Um, so what, what I'm saying about Jack Benny, though, is a lot of people don't know this, but Blue Beetle had his own radio serial. Oh, good point. That's right. You know, so I mean, it was Dan Garrett, but it was Patrolman Dan Garrett. It's a Blue Beetle, you know. <laughs> 
I mean, I, I love it. And it's definitely an homage to uh, a pre-DC Blue Beetle, like kind of that Fox era. But it's, it's very interesting to, to think about that and think about the legacy of the Blue Beetle because he's a character who's been around for almost 80 years at this point. Right. And J.M.D. Mateus was never going to miss a chance to throw a pop culture reference in there, without a doubt. Right. As much as I love the deep pop culture references, what I really sort of chafe about is the very topical 80s pop culture references. I mean, I think Love Boat is great, but there's some other pop culture nods in there that I, I don't think has aged as well. But man. Well, keep in mind, even the Love Boat at this point had been off the air for probably seven or eight years, I would think. So right. Was that the new Love Boat, though, in syndication at that time? Uh, you're talking about the, the next wave or whatever? I, yeah. I, don't, I think that was the 90s, actually. And I'm going totally off the top of my head. I could be completely wrong. But either way, it's, I feel like throwing Gavin McLeod's name around is definitely a, a bit of a, a dig into the past at that point. Yeah, and Gavin McLeod also from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Good point, yep. We get a reference to uh, Bon Jovi as well. Yeah, all in one sentence. What you basically get is they're trying to convince the chief to build this casino, and they're throwing all these pop culture references, trying to you know get the, the chief on the hook. And they, they mention Bon Jovi. They actually mention Donald Trump, having breakfast with Donald Trump, which is pretty jarring nowadays, just given... His transition from, you know, pop culture reference in the 80s to now being obviously President of the United States. It just kind of takes you out of the comic for a moment there. But then they go to Gavin McCloud, and of all those pop culture references, Gavin McCloud's the one that gets the chief the most interested, which cracks me up. I love that, because as a bald man, I have a lot of respect for Gavin McCloud. Well, I mean, he, he does command a lot of respect. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I found the issue in and of itself to be just so much fun. It reminds me a lot of those issues of the X-Men where they would uh, just play like baseball. Yeah, absolutely. Basketball. And I was wondering if there's another nod to the X-Men in here where Guy goes and messes with the airplane. Because I remember in some of my earliest issues of X-Men that when I was reading is Rogue would go up and fly up in the, you know, to catch a baseball or whatever. And she'd fly up and she'd kiss uh, a window of an airplane. I think even President Reagan at one point. And I just felt like this was a bit of a nod to that with the X-Men. Yeah, I can totally see it. <laughs> like Definitely like the worst kind of example is like where you take something that's great and then have Guy ruin it. Right, right. And, and I love what he does it the first time. The guy's toupee actually flies up. It, it, the guy on the plane it, it flies off his head from shock of seeing Guy licking the window. <laughs> and then at the end of the book, we don't even see it happen. We just see Guy flying around and he sees a plane and he's like, woohoo! And he goes flying after the plane. You know what's about to happen. It's just it's yeah, so clever. It's, it's, it, well, it's such a nice callback because it also shows like how distracted Guy is by shiny objects. Yes. I think it's perfect. I think Chip has a better attention span, and Chip's a literal squirrel. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I mean, throughout this whole issue, as, as much fun as this issue is, and as much as I love it, right on the first page, they make sure you know that Guy is the worst. Now, I called Hal Jordan the worst earlier, but Guy is also the worst in this issue, right on the front page. And I read this to my wife just to see what her reaction would be. Guy says, Ice is shaking off her thigh cheese with fire at some health spa. The horror and anger in my wife's eyes when I read that line to her, holy crap. She went on for about 20 minutes like, that is awful. That is terrible. I can't blah, blah, blah. I'm like, honey, you got to understand, you're supposed to hate this guy. You're supposed to think he's the worst. I'm trying to explain to her. I'm like, look, look at all the terrible things he's doing. And um, yeah, she's not having any of it. So I'm afraid my my Guy Gardner action figure might end up in the garbage disposal. I don't know what thigh cheese is. So that joke was lost on me. 
It's a terrible reference, people would say, for needing to exercise. It's awful. Absolutely awful. So, Uh-oh, got it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of big things in this issue. For example, uh, Kilowog gets added to the JLI, which is massive for the direction of the series. In fact, he appears in this issue, and then later the same month, he actually appears in Justice League Europe number 9 as already an integral part of the team. So he's definitely going to be a big part of the family after this, which is absolutely wonderful. And this is actually probably where... I mean, I, I liked Kilowog in those issues of Green Lantern Corps, but this is probably where I fell in love with Kilowog was in the JLI series. I think that he's perfect for this series right now because what he does is he brought... It's sort of like bringing a character from a lesser-known title into, like, the Avengers. Mm-hmm. What it really does is it spotlights these characters and opens them up to a new world. It's like putting Darkhawk on the West Coast Avengers or putting, you know, Nova in the Avengers or putting like Dazzler in the X-Men or Longshot in the X-Men. You know what I mean? So I think it's a really great opportunity to take a, a, a really great character where who is by all extents really, I mean, he's Kilowog's a geneticist. He's a scientist. He's a mechanic. He has everything that that team didn't have at the time. And I'm so happy that he became a member of the team because I think it added a nuance and a depth to the Justice League that I think was missing. Because it was all very like American white bread heroes. Yeah. And the JLI obviously changed that equation a bit, but it was was really nice to see here. What also expands the support crew because, you know, even though we're calling him part of the team, truthfully, he, you know, he's part of the office staff, really. You know, him, Max, Oberon, and it it gives you a chance to expand the the base of people without having to fiddle with the components of the team itself. So I think it's, it's a clever win all the way around. So, a uh, big thing I got to talk about here. Uh, you, you folks, you may or may not be aware. The Firewater Podcast Network was built on the back of uh, fandoms of Firestorm and Aquaman. So, having Aquaman arrive in the la- last page of this issue is a huge, huge, exciting moment for me. First of all, besides being amazingly illustrated. I mean, he looks so heroic and so serious. And maybe I'm reading too much into this as a big Aquaman fan. But it's almost like a reminder of the classic JLA. Just when you see it, you're like, oh. One of the original guys is here, and he's pissed. Wow. So you just get a really strong vibe right off of it. And as far as like a moment in history here, this is after Keith Giffen has plotted the Legend of Aquaman special, where they redid Aquaman's origin, and it's right after the Keith Giffen plotted uh, miniseries that Kurt Swan had drawn. So it's sort of like, you know, you follow Aquaman in his own adventures, and this is where he goes to next. What's fascinating about it is it's just so incredibly heroic. We're still dealing with, I think, a lot of the, this is pre all the fish jokes, you know, but we're still dealing with this really amazing. Aquaman, who I I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong here in my DC history, I, I think really was deserved. Man, I, I, I'm going to say this as lovingly as possible. Uh-oh. I, I think he was really deserved by the stuff that happened in Justice League Detroit. So pivoting him to step this, carefully, sir. I love Justice League Detroit, but I'm saying that some fans did not respond well to his role in that book. I think okay, just that's fair. Him. That's fair. I think the roster was great. One of my very first Justice League books was a Justice League Detroit book. I think the reception to Aquaman in that era was not kind to him. So it's interesting to see four years later how he's got this really powerful, majestic look and feel about him. And he looks like a king rather than, I think, how people felt his treatment was in Justice League Detroit, where he was like upset about his divorce and he was upset about not being a great leader of the league, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's very interesting to see him here in all of his kingly, kingly might. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that face, wow, that Adam Hughes draws on him. He, he just looks so, you're right, majestic is the word. He, he looks regal, he looks in charge, and it's oh, so stunning, so exciting. And, you know, overall, the art in this whole thing is amazing. Adam Hughes is, he's a wonderful successor to Kevin McGuire and Ty Templeton with the facial expressions. He's also got the body language. I mean, he is a complete win for this book, Adam Hughes is. Oh, it's gorgeous. I am absolutely floored by the art in here. I mean, it, it, I think it's really, really stunning and and does so much for the look and feel of the Justice League here, I think it, it it's clearly its own thing. It has some depth in the line work that I don't think you see the same way in Kevin McGuire's work, but also still uniquely its own. I'm just absolutely floored by the way everything looks here. I'm going to give a couple call-outs to specific things. Like on page five, Beetle and Booster, when they first show up on Cooey, 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 there's a panel of them just looking so joyous, so happy as they're on this island. And then later on, when they're talking to Puck, you know, Booster is actually actually leaning on Beetle's shoulder. And it just looked like such a casual besties kind of moment that I absolutely love that. And and by the way, I I say this all the time, folks, but seriously, go out and read this thing in panel by panel mode because there are so many amazing panels that could have been splash pages by themselves. I'll give you an example. On page eight and nine, Kilowog and guys fight, especially in panel by panel mode. You forget that you're looking at a panel. You feel like you're reading a whole page. Each panel is a masterpiece. Each blow looks tremendous. In fact, when I was trying to prove my wife that uh, Guy Gardner was a bad dude. I'm like, see what happens to him? I was using each one of these panels and she she was pretty satisfied with that. But Kilowog smashing Guy in the face. Kilowog smashing him in the stomach, knocking him across the room. They're incredibly powerful. It's just astonishing. Oh, so, and, and Guy, you know, being so excited or when he when he slides across the floor, there's actually this little hand j- written, skitter, skitter, skitter. And, and now that's probably the letter who did that, but it's just absolutely beautiful. I love it. I absolutely love all the pages with Guy and the Kilowog fight. I love the way that Kilowog is pantomimed, where he has kind of this heft and movement to him that that really sort of shows the space he takes up. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love the opening splash page, which if I could own, I totally would. Right. Now, I will say something. You know, Adam Hughes is known for something else you may not be aware, but he's known for drawing very attractive women. And sure enough... Uh, we I love get... how your voice got, like, higher. <laughs> it's because I'm sort of trying to sideways work my way into this. So we get a page of Aresia at the Green Lantern Citadel, and, you know, she is stunning. She is absolutely gorgeous and stunning in this little tiny, very, very tight dress, and she's gorgeous because Adam Hughes draws a gorgeous woman. However... You can't help but remember that she is a 13-year-old girl that's been grown into like the body of a voluptuous 25-year-old. Ah, so disturbing. You know, when did DC finally wake up and, and course correct this? Because I'm, I'm not sure they ever did. Uh, they did, actually. But, I, man, it's this is a sticky wicket. Yeah, um, yeah. I noticed she's not in your story, by the way. <laughs> uh, she is not. But I don't believe that she's 13. I think she's actually 15, which does not make it better. No, it doesn't. But, it, but it, I think she's 15 here, and she's grown to be a full woman. But she's. I think that she was, over the course of time, sort of, readjusted, like retconned a little bit more. Uh, I think you see some of that in Rebirth. I think you definitely see that in New 52 where she has now like a younger kid who is like from this history of Green Lanterns. So she's, she basically follows in a way this 
this lineage of Green Lanterns. And she's like the youngest member. And I think she's of age where she becomes a top recruit. But yeah, it, it's it's very difficult to sort of look at her. I mean, if you're not familiar with Green Lantern history, it's very difficult to look at her and be like, oh, right, you were aged up and you are not. Uh, she's like a walking felony. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And Adam Hughes isn't helping that by drawing her as amazingly as he is. So we should probably just leave that alone before one of us gets implicated in something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, big picture wise, I love this issue. It's a character driven story. There's no villains. It's just a wacky workplace comedy with a lot of superhero tomfoolery. And with all those elements, it makes this issue truly, truly shine. And uh, it, it's genuinely funny. I mean, it is hilarious. GM DiMatteis at this point, he is no longer, when they did this issue, he's no longer writing Justice League Europe. He's no longer writing Mr. Miracle. So, he's not spread across as many books. So, I don't know whether maybe he used that extra time to really pump up the jokes in this thing. I'm not sure. But it is an exceptionally funny read. It is an absolute joy. Now, here's the flip side of this. Because this issue has no villain, because this issue has a wacky, wacky scheme, this is also the kind of issue that led some folks to complain about the League not being serious and just being about the jokes. And it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I see what they're saying, but when the jokes are this damn funny, I'm okay with it. Yeah, for me, this is... A breathing issue. These are these are like the core issues you would see in something like the Avengers. I mean, it definitely follows this Marvel trope of like, we've had a really heavy series of issues. Let's use this issue right now to sort of set up the, the elements of the next story and have some roster adjustments. And I think that that's a really nice opportunity to get to know the characters. There's only three here. And we're coming off of that really heavy Gray Man storyline. And I I think it's a really important piece of how Justice League really sort of works when it works well. And DC Universe works when it works well is, is, okay, we can't have everything breakneck pace. We need to balance the seriousness of stuff with the lightheartedness. And and I feel like Justice League, I mean, this era is fantastic, don't get me wrong. But when we think back about this era of comic books in particular, a lot of comics were going dark as a reflection of the political climate we were in. We were dealing with martial law, which was a, a Marvel comic. Uh, we're Electra Born Again, all the crazy stuff that was happening in, in Dark Knight Returns coming off of Watchmen. We were at, and people forget this contextually, we were at just coming out of the Cold War. You know, So culturally, a lot of people just wanted some breathing room. And and while you can look at the humor and say, oh, this is like a slapstick book, the fact is, is that it's, first of all, it's not. If you go back and read the stories, yes, Booster and Blue Beetle sort of coax you through some stuff, but they deal with some really heady themes and some really difficult political stuff. But I, I think that if if you don't look at this book in context, you you lose a lot of what made it so important for readers of the DC universe at the time. That's very fair. I mean, there weren't a lot of places you could go read a superhero comic and have fun, and this is this is that you know, that safe haven where you could do that. And I think this issue is a great example. I would love to put in somebody's hands who says, oh, the JLI, I always heard they were just jokey. And put it and say, yeah, there are some jokes. But read this one and you'll get it. Because it is so much fun. It's a celebration of so many things. And uh, it's an absolute blast. I can't wait until the next issue. Oh, it's a good one. It's a good one. And uh, as I said, Aquaman, being this is an Aquaman network, uh, you know, that might mean something. So we'll have to find out next uh, episode what that might mean for us. 
Now, I do have to mention, in the letter column, uh, I always like to tr- uh, troll through the letter column to see who, who in there was, wrote a letter in and ended up becoming famous. And there is someone in here, Keith Topping, who uh, went on to write a bunch of Doctor Who novels. So he gets a letter in here, which is really great to see. All right, well, with that, let's move into our next segment, something I like to call... Character Spotlight. This is where the guests will be asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters from this issue. Not really an origin recap, per se, but more about where the character was in the DC Universe just before joining the JLI and what kind of impact the JLI had on their lives or careers. Now, David, we've asked you to please look at everyone's favorite poozer, Kilowog. Oh, so first appearing in Green Lantern Corps 201, Kilowog is like this towering alien with like this brutish, almost like pig slash bulldog appearance. He's renowned in the Green Lantern Corps as the primary trainer for the newest recruits. Not only that, he is a geneticist and a scientist and a mechanic. So this guy is a man of all trades. Because of his alien race, he has super strength, hyper durability, and incredible insight and advanced intellect. Fans of the Justice League cartoon or DC's Green Lantern film or Green Lantern anime series will recognize him as a tough, no-nonsense drill instructor. And he is absolutely all of those things. He was recruited by the Guardians from Space Sector 674, where he served valiantly. And during Christ on Infinite Earth, his planet of Bolivox was going to be destroyed, but Kilowog's power ring protected him and he was able to save the souls and the life forces of everyone inside of his ring. So he carried that burden of being basically like the planet's sole survivor until he was able to, to find a planet for them to all re-inhabit. Now, unfortunately, Sinestra went in and blew that planet up. So uh, Kilowog found himself relentlessly and unrepentingly alone. But he is an absolutely amazing character with a huge legacy in the DC universe, one of the most most preeminent characters in the Green Lantern Corps and, and absolutely one of my favorite in the Green Lantern movie who is voiced by Michael Cork Duncan who sadly passed away a couple years ago mm. and he's uh, Kevin Michael Richardson in uh, the Green Lantern animated series where he is fantastic doesn't take any guff from the series star, quote-unquote series star. <laughs> so it's sort of interesting, if I can add to that, is Kilowog, and my memory may be a little bit hazy here, but my memory was Kilowog didn't get retconned as the drill sergeant trainer until Emerald Dawn. Um, right. Which is actually, when this comic was published, Emerald Dawn was actually going to be started publishing the next month. So this is really a great moment in history for Kilowog because he's joining the JLI as a support character, and they're retconning him at the same time over in uh, Emerald Dawn to make him a more important part to the Greenland legacy. So it's a, a great time to be Kilowog, man. Yeah, and like with Salik and John Stewart and Kat Matui and Chip, you know, he becomes like essentially the uh, more or less the honor guard of the, the Green Lantern Corps. He is one of the most preeminent members and absolutely, absolutely an outstanding character. He even served in the uh, New Guardians, which obviously didn't go over so well. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know that it's a point of distinction. <laughs> from a publishing side, but that's where I think going from Green Lantern Corps to New Guardians to Justice League was a really interesting publishing decision because they knew that they had some sort of gem here with Kilowog. You know, he helps Blue Beetle and Booster Gold establish Club Justice League. Right. And then you know, in an effort to really change the Green Lantern verse, they killed him in Emerald Twilight. But I think DC very quickly realized uh, a mistake they had made because he was one of the first GLs they brought back to try and course correct those decisions. Right. He became the Dark Lantern. Yeah. And I think that 
when they brought him back, he was absolutely fantastic. I think it was something that everybody had wanted. And yeah, I'm, I'm so glad they brought him back. And, and you know, you were talking about his place in the Green Lantern legacy. I think we're at a point now that pretty much any Green Lantern external media stuff that happens at this point, whether it's more movies or cartoons or whatever, I don't think we're going to see anything without Kilowog at this point. I think, I think he's that ingrained into the Green Lantern mythos now that he's around and he's going to be there. And he was just in the Justice League versus the Fatal Five animated movie. Such a great character. We love yeah. him, and we're so happy to have him here at the JLI now. Ugh. I'm so happy that, that Kilowog is a member. So my question is, is like, whose room is he taking in the embassy? And, <laughs> and is he going to get a portrait? Because, you know, like, we ruined the one with Hal. That's true. That's true. If we do it, I'm going to insist that it's like him in the overalls with the with the tool belt, not a Green Lantern uniform. That That's my version of Kilowog. All right. Well, I'm ready. All right. If only we knew some artists. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. All right. Well, from there, we are going to step into our next segment with the... Wahaha Award. This is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and David will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. David, you're the guest. What did you choose? My Bwahaha Award moment goes to the love boat scene on Kui Kui Kui. Ha <laughs> ha! All right. So you want to uh, describe it a little bit for the people at home? Yes. Yeah, so during a, a gigantic, so we're, uh, we're on about page 10, 11 of, of the series. Uh, and on Kui Kui Kui, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold have been talking to Puck and the rest of the tribe uh, on the island about their idea. And they rattle off a bunch of people that could like sort of help celebrities that could, might be able to help goose the deal a little bit. And they rattle off, you know, like John Bon Jovi. They, they rattle off the world's richest man. No, no, no. Then they rattle off Gavin McCloud from the love boat. And then the entire, and they're like, Gavin McCloud, yes. <laughs> and then, the, then they, the whole tribe rattles off the love boat theme. To me, that just spoke to pop culture's influence across the sea. That's an absolutely great one. And again, I'm a big fan of Gavin McCloud, so I, I can't help but love that moment. I was torn. I was really torn. Uh, I was going to go with an, uh, another Kahui Kahui joke, which is when they're talking to Puck. And Puck's explaining to them he, about how the island works and all that. And he refers to them as honored ones. And Beetle's like, hear that? We're called honored ones. And Puck says, don't get too excited. It's a cultural thing. We call all strangers honored ones. If a dead goat washed up on the shore, we'd call it honored one. I found that very, very funny. That is not going to be my pick. It was my pick until moments ago. I have retroactively changed my pick to a visual gag, which is where you, you had talked about in, in your description about Kilowog being sort of sad and being... Uh, a little down in the dumps and he's sitting there going back into the, to the Citadel by himself and he's, he's thinking, being depressed and on the end of one page you hear calling off panel someone go yo poozer and then the next page when you flip it you get Guy Gardner just smashing into Kilowog because you're not expecting that you, you, Guy says he's going to go visit his old friends you don't expect this giant brawl to start which to me is just hilarious So it's such a great opportunity of using the page turn to your advantage Absolutely is. As a comic creator. Yes. So it, here's the question, David. Is it going to be Gavin McCloud or is it going to be the unexpected uh, sneak attack? I think it is going to be Gavin McCloud for the Bwahaha Award because I think it intrinsically it is funnier. However, 
for the Artist Most Likely to Succeed Award, we will give that to Adam Hughes for this panel. Okay. All right. That's fair. All right. So you're right. <laughs> the Artist Most Likely to Succeed. Adam Hughes is like one of the biggest comic celebrities around. So good job, <laughs> young Adam Hughes. Right. Exactly. I, I wonder where your career's going to go from here. <laughs> Well, you're right. For for the yuck yucks, for the blah ha ha, yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to have to go with a Gavin McLeod love boat moment. So there we go. Congratulations, Gavin uh, and Beetle and Booster. You have won the blah ha ha award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Now, David, could you do me a favor? I uh, I recently asked Guy Gardner to do some renovating for me around the embassy. And by recently, I mean about 23 and a half hours ago. Would you mind hanging out here and keeping an eye on the embassy while I go do the next segment? Uh, do I get a power ring? If you can find one and you have the willpower for it, that's on you, buddy. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evils might beware my pants. Beware my pants. I can't even do the oath right. I, I, I was going to say, David, that, that's not even a real ring. That's just the one that came out with Green Lantern number 50. It doesn't, it glows in the dark, but that's a, that's about it, man. Damn it. All right, I'll stay here. Thank you. Now, don't worry, David. We will bring you back at the end of the show. After this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the ninth issue of Justice League Europe. August is Zorro Month here at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. To celebrate the 101st anniversary of Zorro, we here at Fire & Water are producing several episodes celebrating The Fox and his appearances in various media. First up is The Mirror Factory. We focus on where the legend began, the seminal novel by Johnston McCulley, originally entitled The Curse of Capistrano. Then, over on FW Presents, we'll look at El Zorro's long and storied publication history in the realm of comic books. Then on Film & Water, we'll discuss the classic 1940 film The Mark of Zorro with Tyrone Power. Then on Digest Cast, we'll get small to discuss the Zorro comic digest from Paper Cuts. And finally, back on FW Presents, we'll examine the classic 1950s Disney Zorro television series starring Guy Williams. You can find all of these shows at fireandwaterpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. So carve out some time to celebrate Zorro Month with us this August on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Wait, that's all we're doing? Why did you make me watch Zorro the Gay Blade? From David Gallagher and Steve Ellis, the award-winning team that brought you The Only Living Boy, comes this thrilling new action-adventure series, The Only Living Girl. Hi, my name is Andra. People call me Z. I was a normal girl. I loved science, my bear, and my dad. One day, tragedy struck. But that wasn't the end of my story. I awoke in a patchwork world filled with mermaid warriors, insect princesses, robots. A world created by my dad who had become a mad scientist. Now I'm stuck in a world that doesn't trust me, in a conflict with my father's creations. Luckily, I still have my friend Eric and my bear. I am the only living girl. 
The Only Living Girl, Volume 1, The Island at the Edge of Infinity, is available now in both hardcover and paperback from Paper Cuts. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 9. From break, and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. Now, this man has an infectious passion for Silver Age and Bronze Age comics, which is pretty commendable, actually, given his relatively young age. He lives in my favorite part of the country, and he took me to the coolest comic book theme bar that ever existed. Sadly, it recently closed its doors forever. But I can confirm he's the only person I've ever shared a drink with that is specifically called the Superman Red, Superman Blue. And man, it was tasty. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Nicholas Prom. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Nicholas. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, Shag. It's great to finally uh, sit down and record with you. I know. We've sat down across the table. We've slammed back some comic-themed drinks. We've had food. We've been to comic shops, but we've never right. actually done this. So this is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, you've got this one over on Rob. I mean, he and I have done a lot of podcasts together, but... Uh... He did warn me about you. Oh, did he now? <laughs> no. <laughs> So you are in, like, one of the comic book meccas of the world, sir. You are in Portland, Oregon, which is just overflowing with comic creators, comic shops. It is absolutely incredible there. I mean, I I don't know what it must be like living in that zone, but, I mean, you just bump into, I don't know, Jeff Parker in a bathroom or something? Oh, I haven't run into Jeff Parker in the bathroom. I've met Jeff. But, I mean, like, I keep running into, like, Brian Michael Bendis. Um, What? Yeah. Oh, I I ran into him, like, right before it was announced that he was going to be taking over the Superman books. Oh, my gosh. the rumor. And yeah. I got to like pick his brain about that. And he, he, I was there and he's like, he bought like a hundred dollars worth of Superman book in front of me. Like a little bit of a giveaway there. The cat was out of the bag. <laughs> um, Brian's a very nice guy. And he's doing a great job on the Legion, among other books. He's really, he's doing great. God, there are tons of comic book creators in Portland. You're right. And over a dozen comic shops, Dark Horse Comics, Oni Press, Heavy Metal, Image has an office here. Like it's comic book city, man. It is without a doubt my favorite place in the country. I desperately, my wife and I both desperately want to move there. I'm pretty fond of it myself. I, I would hope so. <laughs> it may take till our retirement, but sooner or later we're going to end up out there. And I can't well, you're not wait. that far from that, are you, Shag? <laughs> wow! He is swinging right out of the gate, folks. Uh, and I was going to make a comment about I was going to bring my restraining order against you with me when I come out there, but now I'm going to definitely make sure. Well, just your AARP card as well. Oh, I never <laughs> liked you. Not In fact, you know, I think you have more gray hair than me, though. Even though you're like a zillion years younger, I've seen some gray. I've got more gray hair and also just more hair. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This kid is brutal, people. Look, you <sighs> set him up. I'll knock him down, Shag. So, all right, you know, you you told me this story in person, but let's, let's share this with the audience. So, again, you're, you're a relatively young guy, except you love Silver Age and Bronze Age comics. I How do. did that... You didn't come up in that era. How did that happen? You know, I think I just enjoyed the... Gosh, how did, how did that happen? I think... Um, yeah, you're really on the spot here. Who's got the Alzheimer's? Come on. I didn't know you were going to ask me this. Why do you <laughs> like a thing? Sometimes you just like a thing. <laughs> you have a whole show on 
it. You probably talked about it once or twice. Right. Here's, okay. So I've always loved comic books, period. But I, I don't know. I always ended up finding that, you know, when I would come upon, uh, you know, stuff from, from when I was very little, you know, but way, way before I was reading comics, you know, I'm, I'm born in 1982. So when I find when I would come upon these old comic books, I, I just found that these were the things I enjoyed the most. I started reading comics probably actually around the, the year this, this book we're going to talk about came out, probably 88 or 89, and really started digging in 90, 91. But I was a kid without an allowance. And so I was always frustrated by the serialized nature of comics. But then I f- discovered like the old EC comics reprints that were coming out. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I get endings every issue. <laughs> and so I would I would gravitate to like things that would like reprint old stuff. And so I found like those old old 50 stuff where like Marvel had their Marvel uh, milestone issue reprints. That was probably mm. the start of my Silver Age love. I came to really be a DC guy in my adulthood, not really as a kid. I, I wasn't much on DC and we'll get into that a little bit later in the show. But I don't know. I think it, it was just, you know, you, you try different things and you find, you know, what you like the most and maybe focus in on that. So it sounds like you could almost say you found your joy? I did find my joy. And my joy just happened to be in these older books. JLI is adult fun. But if, if I had seen satellite era Justice League comics when I was a kid, which I didn't, I would have loved the heck out of them. I, that probably would have been my favorite thing, like Rob. Right. So, all right. Well, th- th- this leads us to the next natural question, though. What is your origin story? with the Justice League International. How did you find the book and what made you fall in love with it? Well, this issue was the first Justice League anything I ever saw. Whoa! Uh, I completely missed Super Friends. I never saw it. Um, Dude! Well, I guess, yeah, I guess they were off the air by the time you were like three. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like 86 is the last season, so I mean, like I'm like four years old. Yeah, I don't have any recollection or childhood memories of Super Friends, okay? I probably saw this book in 1990. Mm-hmm. I, I know it's 1989, but like a classmate gave it to me or something, and I, you know, I had seen some Superman and Batman pre-crisis and post but this was like I didn't know what to make of this okay um, there was I mean outside of Superman and Batman and the Flash I'm like who the heck are these any of these people <laughs> you know who's this guy who looks like chewed up bubble gum that, that calls people poozer what's a poozer uh, <laughs> you know who's this shiny metal guy I'm very interested in the shiny metal guy Captain Adam uh, Metamorpho I might have seen once in an issue of Batman and the Outsiders you right, know like right. I, this is, Power Girl no idea who this is so like Elongated Man, this is my introduction to the character. So I'm like eight. And for someone in their late teens, a book like this makes perfect sense. If there's a familiarity with all these characters you've grown up on, like Super Friends and, and, and comics from Pre-Crisis, you, you have all that to build on, okay? Marvel Comics, they had this great kind of thing, like, should write every issue like it's somebody's first, so it's yeah. a perfect gateway. I was such a Marvel kid, because didn't it wasn't like people in costumes standing around talking, it was easy access and punching, so <laughs> that, that was great for an eight-year-old, okay? And this is a good comic book. It's just, I feel like, at this time, DC, in the, the first handful of years of the post-crisis era, it's the quality is there. These are good comics, but they're so focused on the, well, comics aren't just for kids anymore, that they've left children entirely behind. Even the Superman and Batman books that are coming out in 1989, I'm like, hmm, is that really something you'd give a kid? That's fair. There was there was definitely a bigger focus on the serialized storytelling, so you weren't getting necessarily a beginning, middle, and end in every issue. And yeah. they were chasing that direct market. Yeah, they were definitely chasing the direct market, which was your kids that were more the teenage and up age range. Yeah, so for me, you know, this was I grew up in the tail end of the spinner rack era, okay? And really, there was nothing on the spinner rack 
for eight to 10 year old Nicholas from DC. It just yeah. wasn't, you know? So I was a Marvel kid through and through. And I came to DC later and I came to appreciate, but this is like impenetrable for someone at that age. Now, it made me curious about these characters and I would like to think on you know them later. And th- this issue is seared into my memory. Like I went through this and, like, and I remember every panel. So I must've read the heck out of it, even though I didn't know up and down. But Well, uh, I got to tell you, as far as impenetrable goes, it just depends, I guess, of what captures your imagination. Because my first real deep dive into DC was Crisis on Infinite Earth number seven. Um, wow. Or no, wait, no, I'm sorry. Number six and number eight. That was it. Number six and number eight, which is just like, what? You know, so many characters, so much non-explained, just dive in deep. But for me, like, it, it drove that passion to want to find out more, which would drive me to things like who's who. And then comparatively with Marvel, you know, I was a big X-Men guy, so I'd be reading Marvel Saga, a comic you might be familiar with. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, oh, the X-Men, another book where people just stand around and talk about their feelings. <laughs> So wait a minute. Uh, you know, I had letters printed in X Men. So are you trying to say that uh, I have a, t- a pattern here? I have a type. Okay, I see you how you're definitely saying. Definitely have a type. <laughs> I was a letter like- column junkie, folks. Yeah. yeah, I was never a letter hack. I wish I had written to comics, but um, I don't think I really had a, an analytical mind. You know, like I would be like, "Wow, Spider Man's great." You know, like I don't know what I would have said as, as a kid. But and also keeping up with a lot of things issue to issue was really hard for me. But tastes develop differently, and you know, like these are good comics. I just felt like, man, I wish there'd been like a Superman or a Batman book in 1989 that that was easy entry for me, you know? Yeah, the, the Batman, once the movie came out, it all became definitely darker and things like that until you get the animated series in 92, yeah. Oh, yeah, and and then that that was wonderful. Oh, like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So let's bring us back to Justice League. So this is your first issue of Justice League, which yeah. is amazing that you're here with us now. It's so cool. So <laughs> when, when was it that you actually fell in love? When was it that it all clicked and you're like, I get it. Well, I get the boahaha. When was that? With Justice League International? Yeah. You know what? Again, I didn't really circle back to like become a major DC fan until like, you know, sometime in my 20s. Probably. And and as far as Justice League International, I mean, like I got a taste of it, you know, in, in like, what was it? 92, 3 when they did The Death of Superman. Sure. Yeah. But I feel like it was when I read formerly known as The Justice League. Oh, it's so good. It's wonderful. And it's like, it made me appreciate, and Kevin McGuire's art is beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Giffen and, and Demetrius, um, the guys, these guys can write. I mean, like. I noticed that. I'm, I'm a Giffen Legion man, you know, uh, mm-hmm. pre, pre five year later. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm 5YL. That's okay. We can still be friends. <laughs> we can be friends. Like, but here's the thing. You liking 5YL really tracks with you loving JLI. Wow, they're because, so they're like completely night and day. No, 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 no. Here's why: because they're character books. They're not action books. Oh, yo, that's totally true. I'm definitely a character interaction kind of fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah, and no, and, and I think that stuff's really good too. I just feel like Marvel always had a formula that was: I, I have a villain every issue, I have some conflict, I have some fight, and I have ongoing subplots and backstory. And and those are there, but I can come in at any issue and have some enjoyment. And I kind of like that work. I think a reason that they, they've been the number one in the industry since like a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it's been, they, they kind of know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I look, I love DC Comics and, and I fell in love with DC just because of the mythology uh, of DC. I think like a lot of the Elseworlds books that just played with, oh, you know, the things that you know in the cultural zeitgeist about these characters. Well, now I'm going to turn this up on an ear and mm-hmm. give you a, a, a funhouse mirror version of that character and see how they interact in these other circumstances. And like that kind of stuff just, it's like peeling back layers of of an onion. Ultimately, I'm a, I'm a DC adult who loves the juvenile fare 
of, of the Silver Age, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I totally get um, it, man. I, I often used to say Marvel was a training ground for because I was a Marvel guy myself at first. Sure. And I would say Marvel's the training ground. And then you, as you became more sophisticated, you became a DC reader. Well, what I realized now was Marvel, as you said, knew how to throw an action-packed comic together and with a lot of sub, you know, subplots and drama. And then DC focused on, as you said, more of the character stuff. So it's not that DC was more mature or anything. It was just a different type of storytelling, which appealed to me as I got older. Right. Uh, I, to- I totally have a complete appreciation for both both product lines. Yeah, no, no, totally. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like one of these like Marvel versus DC guys, or you got to be part of our gang. You're like, look, I love Marvel comics. Um, but I'm thinking like 90% of the stuff that I pull out of the bins when I'm bin diving, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's Silver and Bronze Age DC. <laughs> I just picked up a stack of like beat up reader copies. I got an, uh, uh, an old Sea Devils, an old GI Combat. I got uh, I got some Bronze Age Batman. I got some some like a Gil Kane Superman. I got a bunch of wild stuff that I just pulled out of the, some dollar boxes, and I'm like, I'm in heaven. I'm That's heaven. awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, we could sit here and talk about old comics forever, which we, we could uh, honestly could, and we've done before. But right <laughs> now we no don't apologize. Uh, right now we're going to jump into Justice League Europe number nine. It's published by DC Comics. Cover dated December 1989. It was on the shelves November 7th, 1989. Cover price was $1, four shiny quarters. Cover is pencils by Art Nichols with inks by Bart Sears, which is a little weird if you've been following Justice League Europe at this point, because that's reversed. Normally, it's Bart Sears doing the pencils, Art Nichols doing the inks, but they have swapped places. It happens. Why don't you describe the cover for the folks at home? Uh, before I describe the cover, I have perhaps something to uh, lend some insight to that. Ooh. Perhaps. Dish. Bart, you know, because it takes longer to do pencils, full pencils, mm-hmm. than to ink, typically depending on, on on how much inking you're doing. It may have been a case as Bart's busy doing full pencils on like interiors of a book because he, do, he doesn't do this one, right? Yeah. Uh, norm, normally he would be drawing just as a Europe, but yeah, he could have been doing some other book for DC. Also, yeah. he maybe he sp- was spending some extra time doing the previous issues where they did that big Teasdale crossover. So maybe That's he put true. some extra time in on that one and then Art picked up here and they were just trying to uh, manage both to, uh, to hit the deadlines. Yeah, they were like, hey, Art, can you do the pencils in this and Bart will come in and ink it, that kind of thing. So we can kind of get some artistic consistency by having Bart ink it, mm-hmm. you know, while they have... This is a fill-in artist on this issue, right? Well, Art Nichols, he was Bart's inker quite often. So it's the, really them just f- switching roles. Interesting. Well, maybe yeah. Bart needed a break or maybe they just wanted to try something. Yeah, um, could have been different. The, art, the art's nice in this issue. And the cover is really cool. It's super memorable. We've got Superman in this totally Jack Kirby-like uh, yeah. machinery using the heat vision to perform surgery on Power Girl, although she's in her costume, which is, you know, different than the book. We've got behind uh, glass, we've got the members of the Justice League Europe looking on. Again, does not appear in the comic, but it's a very striking cover. It's one that I've never forgot. It's absolutely incredible. It's one of my favorite covers from the series. You mentioned the Kirby tech. Oh my gosh, it looks so awesome. I mean, it really, really looks like a great homage to Kirby. It's got these three different like sort of laser scalpels coming off of Superman's visor and it's shooting down. And in the background, you see all the, you know, the members that are worried, which is great. You've got the addition of Batman and Kilowog there. They're actually on the Justice League America team, but they're here helping out. Right. Uh, It's a, it's a really, really striking cover. And also the lighting, even the lighting is cool because, you know, Superman's generating so much light. It's causing shadows coming off of him. The composition of this cover is really like phenomenal. It's really complex. You even see like waves of light reflecting off the glass that they mm-hmm. the guys, the partition the guys are behind. There's a lot of thought behind this, and it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah. Well, once we open the book, we've got a plot by Keith Giffen. We've got dialogue by Bill Mester Loeb's. Now, this is a huge change because you know up till now the first eight issues were all scripted by J.M.D. Mateus, and mm-hmm. he has stepped away from the Justice League Europe book. Now he's got a lot of other 
stuff on his plate. So Bill Nestor Lobes comes in with his issue to be the new regular dialogue scripter person. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, he'll only last four issues, wow. but uh, it, it's, it's pretty awesome right now. So interior pencils, again, by Art Nichols, inks by Bart Sears. As I mentioned, sort of flipping roles there, still in the interiors as well. Letters by Bob LaPan, colors Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer. Andy Helfer! Yay! The issue itself is called Under the Skin. Yeah. When do you kick off our recap? Power Girl has been gravely injured in battle. Captain Adam and Catherine Colbert are discussing options with the doctor. He must operate in order to save Power Girl's life, but can't because of her invulnerability. Sue Dibney has taken the liberty of calling in Superman for help. Ralph is distressed about this because he knows Cap will likely feel slighted and be angered by this breach of protocol. Ralph, who can't leave well enough alone, goes and pisses off Wally. And that's a whole thing. Superman shows up at the hospital, and Ralph was right, but Sue lets Cap have it, and the grown-ups form a plan. Metamorpho, while visiting the unconscious power girl, is visited by Batman, who shows up to give him the business, and uh, Ralph and Wally have talky-talk and hash out their issues, and Superman begins the surgery. Great, I'll take it from here. So with the surgery started, Sue Dibney and Captain Adam, they, they reconcile their differences. Captain Adam recognizes that Sue's quick thinking just might be responsible for saving Power Girl's life. Now, Kilowog is also on hand as he's helped build the surgical equipment in his new role as the JLI Super Fix-It Man. Metamorpho finally unloads on Batman about his feeling uh, abandoned by the Outsiders when he returned to life after the invasion. Batman dodges the subject very callously and tells Metamorpho that his memory problems could make him unstable and a threat to the JLE team. Metamorpho is understandably furious and storms off, calling Batman a jerk. Later, Metamorpho comes to terms with Batman's comments and decides to stop peeing himself. Now, Power Girl's surgery progresses, but the doctor's struggling with her alien anatomy and her, uh, the internal injuries. Animal Man and Rocket Red are back at the embassy watching French TV stations running stories all about uh, Paris's beloved Power Girl and her fight to survive. Now, the surgery is a success, but the doctor indicates that the damage and the efforts to save her may have dramatically reduced her powers. Superman and Captain Adam break the news to Power Girl. And then after a week of recovery, Power Girl is nearly ready to check out of the hospital. She's already been secretly experimenting with her powers, though. She acknowledges that they've been greatly reduced, but she's still faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, and able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And she decides she can live with that. Says, next issue, After the Fox. So it looks like we're going to finally uh, see Crimson Fox in the issue. So, sir, what did you think? You know, again, this is a, a, an early DC comic for me, and and the memories just came flooding back, and I really got to say, like, I know at the top of the show it sounded like I was maybe bagging on it, like, this is a good comic book, and there's really a lot of fun here. It's definitely the sophisticated adult fun for mm-hmm. the older teen or, or above to enjoy, but it's, it's, it's a, this is a good comic. It's really a nice breather issue. But In fact, both Justice League America and Justice League Europe this month were that kind of sense you know we had a huge four issue crossover right before this so they they expertly planned this out to give you a breather i mean there's no super villain fights there's just the usual jli wackiness paired with some like emotional moments and then uh there's also some nice symmetry because they bring kilowog into both issues yeah so one of the things that really kind of i don't know shocked me for a second there when i was reading it is is the doctor is explaining that he doesn't really know how to save power girl right because because her skin is completely invulnerable they can't operate on her they can't even bandage up like the surface level wounds because her skin's invulnerable. Yeah. And he tells them to contact the superhero mortician. 
yeah. uh, which is just like, whoa. I, I, and I realized at this point, you know, they'd lost a few people, I guess, with crisis and things like that. So that maybe that was in the, in the zeitgeist. But it gets me thinking about, you know, identity crisis and that kind of era, really, when I think about mm, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, like, because in rereading this, there's stuff that I didn't pick up on when I was a kid. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't realize how glib and, like, flippant the doctor was being in those opening pages. Like, I read it totally straight. Probably mm-hmm. because I wasn't expecting superhero stuff to be, like, joking unless you're, like, fighting a supervillain and, like, cracking wise. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, the old Spider-Man. So, exactly. So I, I read that stuff just totally straight. But the nuances here, as I'm rereading it as an adult, this is, so it's interesting. It's fresh eyes, you know, or fresh look. And they also try to lay some of the humor in there. Like, he keeps nudging that he wants to write a paper on this stuff. You know, like, you know, this could make me super rich, you know, and that kind of stuff. So there's they try to lace in some of the humor there. I will say, in general, this isn't a, a, a bust-a-gut, blah-ha-ha, funny kind of issue. And I don't know whether they were trying to take it a little more serious because it's Power Girl's injuries, or whether maybe it's Bill Messerloop still finding his feet from traditional superhero humor to blah-ha-ha-ness. You know, like, because there are situational humorous bits. Again, like the doctor mentioned that kind of stuff. Or Ralph is asking everyone to take over for him in monitor duty and stuff like that. But there's not the, the outrageous butt-gusting laughing moments that you, you would normally expect. Right. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a little different. Right. And I, here's the thing. I love, oh, I know we're going to get into it, but I the stuff with Wally West and Ralph is probably the best stuff in the issue. Okay. Um, and I think it's great. You know, Bill was writing The Flash at this time. Perfect, you know. And, and they actually make a reference to that in the previous issue because uh, up till now, they really weren't handling Wally West authentically, maybe is the best way to put it. Wally sure. really, in the Justice League Europe book, was a skeevy jerk. I mean, he yeah. was always on the make trying to hook up with a girl. All he cared about was making money. It, and it didn't echo what was going on in the Flash book. So when they get Bill Mister Loeb's on, they even said in the letter column next time, they said, you know, when they announced it, they said, now, you know, you're not going to be able to complain about how we handle the Flash now. Mm. And, and I think this did a nice job of sort of course correcting how they were going to handle Wally at this point. Yeah. Now, if I remember right, though, wasn't in, in Flash's book at this time that Bill was writing, wasn't like Flash like growing around with this supervillain speedster's wife? So like some of that tracks, right? Some of it, but I want to say by this point, oh, geez, you know, I can't remember the exact numbering, but I think they were into the 20s. They're into the, tw- okay. issue, the probably the issues in the 20s by this point with Flash. And he had kind of settled into being not quite as skeevy as he was. Yeah, he was after okay. Tina McGee at one point. But oh. um, let's let's face it, it's, it's Tina McGee. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so here's the thing, though. I mean, I'm aware of the Flash. I think I had a Flash, like a pre-crisis Flash comic this time. I'm totally unaware of like Kid Flash or like there being a legacy. I certainly haven't read Crisis at this time. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, there was this whole passing of the mantle and then not being treated as an equal or not being made to feel like you don't measure up. Like, whoa, that was some some interesting stuff for, for me as a kid. I didn't know about any of that stuff. So yeah, you'd kind of have to piece it together as you're going. Yeah, they keep talking about Barry, but they don't necessarily you know come right out and say that you know I took over for Barry as the Flash. I mean, you gotta yeah, you get I mean, great. It's implied. I kind of figured that out, but I'm like, I didn't know that there were you know like that he had died and that there was another Flash and like all this like huh like. But I really enjoy the stuff with him and Ralph. And Ralph is this is my again my introduction to the character in this issue. And like wow, not a uh, favorable. I this did not make me any longer. Man fan. <laughs> oh, really? Just because he was being so uh, mean to Wally? Well, he seemed like such a turd and like like the really annoying guy. Like everybody else, Dimitri, who I'm like, I don't know who this guy is who speaks broken English. You know, again, I'm thinking of my memories as a kid. But like, sure, sure. Everybody gives him the brush off. It's like, okay, this is a guy nobody takes seriously and nobody likes. Hmm, and okay. Like that was my read on it. And and also he does seem like kind of a wiener and kind of a jerk. No, um, that's fair. Uh, 
So, I mean, like, I like Ralph now, but this issue didn't doesn't really paint him terribly favorably. Although there's some some warm stuff uh, later on as, as he and Wally are sharing Flash stories. Yeah, the reconciliation, you get a better picture of him, but yeah, leading up to that, you certainly don't. Now, all along, uh, Ralph's been needling Wally in every issue yeah. leading up to this. And so this has been a long time coming, their sort of, uh, their discussion. And by the end of it, you, you don't really get the sense that Ralph's going to stop teasing Wally. It's just that Wally understands that Ralph respects him. And so uh, it's more right. like, you know, sort of like what no. you and I are doing, sir. <laughs> sure. But, and it's so weird, though, to look at this in hindsight and be like, okay, if the crisis reset a lot of reality, but they clearly remember the satellite era, mm-hmm. which... <sighs> If you pull on the threads too much, it just it just the, the sweater falls apart. Well, right, because well, Superman's not on the team. Wonder Woman's not on the team. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of things. It's a lot. Of things. But, <laughs> you know, and I know there's like later issues where like Hawkman's like, oh, we never do this in the old league. It's like, what? How do you even remember the old league? You know? Yeah, we don't we we don't talk about Hawkman between Crisis and in Hawkworld. It's too confusing. Makes yeah. my head hurt. I don't have enough excitement yeah. in the house for that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will say post Crisis seems to have course corrected uh, enough to make sense at least by the time we get through zero hour. Uh, I'm a, I'm a post-crisis baby myself, so I took all this in my stride, and I was perfectly fine with the fact that like they would reboot a character four years after the crisis. I'm like, that's okay. They're just catching up. No big deal. So yeah. I, it didn't bother me. I just went with it. Right. And again, and, and it makes sense if you were reading stuff up to the crisis. You got, oh, oh okay. This is how what I remember, and this is how it's different now. All right. Yeah. But yeah. As far as characters not being very likable, I gotta say, straight up, Batman is a dick in this issue. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's a real problem, I think. Batman's characterization in the JLI in general is kind of like, well, this guy's not really a, a guy that I like to see or read about. But I mean, that had been going for a few years. You know, when he, you know, he left the Justice League. Ah, oh, you're too big Justice League. Here, I'm going with the Outsiders, and then he bailed on them. Right. You know, like Bat- Batman being a dick was kind of like on the wind, and I think it wasn't a great direction. But it was. I understand why the choice was made to go that way. It's like, what else are we going to do with this guy who's been around for? you know, going on 50 years at that point. Well, I, I agree and I disagree a little bit. Like, I agree. He's absolutely brusque and he's unpleasant. And he's not somebody you want to be friends with. But right. in the JLI, or at least the the other book, Justice League of America, let's call it that, th- he would be a jerk to be someone. But always by the end of the issue, you got some sort of sense that, you know, either, it, well, I guess I should say, the Batman story always came back around. So you always felt like it was a complete story and you felt like whatever issue came up before it was resolved. And what makes me okay. mad here is the issue with Metamorpho is not resolved. Yeah. Metamorpho's like, hey, Batman, you know, you guys deserted me when I when I came back to life. Because, you know, Metamorpho died. Well, yeah. maybe you don't know. I don't know. I uh, not you specifically. The people at home. Metamorpho died at the end of, I don't know, Outsiders or I can't quite remember. And he comes back to life in Invasion. Mm-hmm. And apparently no one from his team came to see him when he came back to life. No one from the Outsiders at all. And he had amnesia, didn't even know who he was. So once his memories start coming back, he realizes the Outsiders never came for him. So here he's unloading on Batman going, dude, I was in the hospital. You guys didn't even come to see me. And Batman totally says, I'm not even here to talk about that and blows it off completely and tells Metamorpho he's unstable. So Metamorpho gets pissed off, understandably, storms out. And then later in the issue, he just comes around. He just says like, you know, Metamorpho that is. He goes like, you know, I should stop pitying myself. Instead, I feel like the issue, the, the one thing missing from this issue is some sort of resolution between him and Batman about this whole thing. Like there's never any closure on the issue of Metamorpho being abandoned by the outside. 
Outsiders. Or, man, Batman abandoned the Outsiders when they were still a going concern. It is kind of his go-to move. (laughs) He abandons the Justice League. He abandons the Outsiders. He abandoned the Justice League International many times. It's it's his signature move. (laughs) It's like a Batarang. In Justice League America of this era, Batman is a dick, but also it's kind of like he's doing it because he's like, he's the adult in the room. Yeah, he's a straight man. Yeah. Somebody has to reign in Guy and Beetle for crying out loud, you know? like Absolutely. Yeah, when, when it's not Martian Manhunter, it's Batman. Yeah. You know, and, and John Jones, he's too much of a good cop, you know? He's he's too nice, <laughs> you know, especially when, when, when we're talking about Guy Gardner, okay? He's a bit of a den mother. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say this out of love because, like, man, that first, you know, 10 or so issues of Justice League of, of America of this era, whew, that, that's some great reading. It's pure gold. Pure yeah. gold. Yeah. So I want to talk a little about Superman. So he's a big deal on this issue. So this is kind of cool because Superman doesn't really come around to the Justice League much at this point. So right. in the post-crisis world, you know, Superman's not a member of the Justice League. He never was. You know, we found out in Secret Origins number 32, which came out like, I don't know, like a year before this or something. Sure. They retold the JLA origin. They redid yeah. it. Superman and Batman weren't part of the original team. You know, they replaced Wonder Woman, Black Canary, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So Superman's not a member of the JLA. He never was. He always says he'll be there when they need him. So here, he, they call him in and he's bumped into the Justice League in general, certainly, you know, during big, you know, the yeah. annual crisis, whatever that might be. Yeah. You know, use crisis in quotes. And, but this is really his first time hanging out with Justice League Europe. And at this point, he's even unaware that Sue and Ralph are part, and I said Sue and Ralph, not Ralph and Sue, but uh, he's unaware that they're even part of the JLI. And he makes a joke about the roster. He says, the roster changes happen so frequently, maybe they should have a newsletter to keep up with that. And I started wondering, maybe that's like an inside joke of like all the fanzines or something to, uh, that, to in, in the letter column and stuff that's always talking about all the all the roster changes and people who want who they want on the team and stuff like right. that. Maybe. And like also, how is Elongated Man even on Superman's radar? You know? Like, well, if Elongated Man was part of the uh, satellite era, Superman should at least know who he is, I would hope. Right. And it's, but it, it's so fuzzy, like, what do they remember from before the crisis or not? Especially because Superman's had the hard reboot from John Byrne at this time. Yeah. Where John Byrne took out half of all the fun things about Superman. <laughs> but uh, anyway... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do like Superman's got this comment about the JLI disorganization at one point. He's talking to Captain Adam because, you know, Superman shows up in Paris and Captain Adam's like, you know, hey, thanks for coming, bro, but we didn't invite you. And Superman's like, but you did send for me. Sue Dibney called me herself. Don't you people talk to each other? Which That's I thought hilarious. was a was a great dig at sort of the JLI wackiness and how crazy it can get. Yeah, I love Superman's presence in this. He's totally straight. He's totally Superman the whole time. It's, it, it is Superman to a T. And funny though, how does Sue have Superman... How does she get a hold of Superman? She get a signal watch from you know stole from Jimmy Olsen. You know? Well, that's a good point. She said it was the signal device, so I guess there is a line about how Max tried to convince Superman to join, and Superman uh, said he would be there if they ever needed him. So uh, maybe he had a signal device, but okay. is he always carrying that around with him? I mean, I don't know. I mean, That'd be I a pretty big, know. you know, that's a big bulge in your pocket there, Superman. Are you just happy you know, to see me? You remember pre-crisis, you know, Superman had a big pocket in his cape to like where he kept his compressed Clark Kent clothes and stuff. That's true. That's true. So maybe there's something, I don't know. You're winning a no prize there. <laughs> <laughs> So we got to talk about Power Girl here. So first of all, it's interesting how they comment and how the French TV stations are all praising Power Girl. They're saying that she's beloved, how the city of Paris has fallen in love with her, which is interesting because up till now, the uh, Paris pretty much has hated the Justice League Europe. They've been totally nasty to him. Mm. So Buddy actually makes a comment, Buddy being uh, Animal Man, Animal Man makes a comment. Who's in one panel, and I'm like, who's that? Oh, love him so much. No, no, no. I, I love Animal Man. Yeah. Again, something I read much later at this, I'm yeah. like, I, I, I don't even get 
told That's who you, this is in the issue. You know, like, you're right. You're right. He's just sitting there watching TV and walks out the door. Good point. Yeah. And they don't even call him Animal Man at any point. They just call him Buddy. Yeah. <laughs> but he makes a good point that you know, pretty much Power Girl had to get you know mortally wounded in order for the Parisians to accept her. Well, that's the French for you. <laughs> so Power Girl is in this medically induced coma, which is something we hear a lot about nowadays, but which is just horrible. I mean, absolutely horrible. And it's all been caused by this magically powered backslap, basically, by the gray man. Yeah. And, and they say, they suggest the surgery, at one point they talk about the surgery lasting six hours, then they talk about the surgery lasting as long as potentially 30 hours. I don't know. Ooh. Falls somewhere in there. But wow. I, I can't even imagine, man. Yeah. So after the surgery, you know, her powers are downgraded, right? Which um, she, you know, she's still strong, could fly and those kind of things, but nowhere near the level she used to be. Now, to me, being a post-crisis baby, that sort of makes sense because if they're trying to make Superman the only real Kryptonian and they've now, they've established this whole whatever Atlantean origin for her, they can't, I know, no one likes that. Nobody likes that, but they can't have her at the same power level as Superman. It just, it doesn't make sense. So I gave John Byrne too much power. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) I'm on board with them depowering Power Girl. I don't know. As a Bronze Age fan, how do you feel about them depowering Power Girl? You know, I mean, like, here's the thing. You know, they've tried to depower Superman, too. You know, and it's just like, look, you know, if you cut infinite power in half, it still doesn't, that doesn't mean anything, you know? Like, mm. so, like, if they're still bulletproof, it's it's not, you haven't really done anything but give me lip service, you know? Okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, like, I had, again... This is my introduction to Power Girl. She is a, a non-entity to me at this at this. Yeah, point. good point. So I I don't have any feelings about her. I will say like, gosh, that Atlantean thing is so bad. Like what? Ugh. They're just like, how can we keep this character around? And they're just grasping at straws. And so many of the post-crisis like patches. Uh, tend to land that way. I, I totally get why they did it and, and where they were coming from, trying to tie it to Aaron, Lord of Atlantis. But the, the smarter, cleaner, easier way would have been just to say, she's a Daxamite, be done with it, move on. That would have made sense. Or, you know what's smart and clean? Hey, she's from a parallel Earth where, where that vibrates on a different uh, frequency. Uh, and, and she's the, the cousin of Superman on that other Earth. Hmm. Well, that kind of goes against everything they wanted to do. But Jeff Johns yeah. did get there eventually. You got your wish. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, so, all right, let's talk about the art a little bit. We talked about Art Nichols doing the, the pencils here with Bart Sears doing the inks. Uh, I think it's an absolutely fine job. It, it's very serviceable. It's nice. It's attractive. You know, you can see some of Bart Sears' flares in there. No, it's good. Um, it's not outstanding, but it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And I'll say, Catherine Colbert, hot. She always is, sir. See, she I always is. <laughs> I can't help that I've been uh, harboring a 30-year crush on that woman. Here's I'm the thing. Sorry. I never say stuff like this on my show. Okay. Oh, I am having a goof. (laughs) You let it all out. Yeah. I will. I will give a huge nod to Art Nichols. Uh, his Notre Dame that he drew is stunning. It almost makes me think that you know it's it, it may be light. I mean, I, I'm not trying to take anything away from him. It's just so photorealistic. I wonder if it was light boxed or maybe he was just studying a, a photorealistic. But it looks gorgeous. It looks beautiful. Notre Dame yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. So and uh, I, I really like sort of the the suggestion with Rex hanging out there, uh, sort of in a gargoyle pose. Yeah. You know, it, they don't come right out and say it, but it's kind of nice seeing him in that sort of gargoyle situation. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's great. And, I'll, and I and I gotta say, my, one of my favorite panels in the issue is when he floats away and calls Batman a jerk. Like, that that panel is great. I love his face in that panel. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, there's a nice expletive in there, too, that we don't yeah. even see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. yeah. Well, alright, I guess the next big thing to do is to talk about what made us laugh the most. So, folks, uh, it is time for the... 
Quahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Nicholas will pick a moment, and only one of them will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Nicholas, you're the guest, unfortunately for everyone listening. Uh, what is your pick for Thanks. the Bwahaha Award? <laughs> um, I, <laughs> wow, what an introduction. My Bwahaha uh, Award, I think it's got to be when Ralph and Wally are sharing Barry Allen stories, and Barry is telling Ralph about the time Captain Boomerang is in a Flash costume, and he Heatwave wakes up and sets him on fire thinking it's that it's the Flash. <laughs> and then Barry is dressed as Weather Wizard and tries to use the wand to put him out, but doesn't know how it works. And he, so he hits him with lightning. I thought that was a hoot. That makes a great story. It also is accentuated with Ralph on the floor, literally in, in, a, in a puddle almost, in, you know, stretched out laughing his head off. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think that's a great artistic choice to show, oh, let's do the stretchy guy cracking up and his body, you know, movements exaggerating like that. Great. And it's interesting. They always say in comics, show, don't tell. This is very specifically an example of tell, but it still works. Yeah. Mine was, uh, because there weren't a lot of blah-ha-ha busting up moments in this. Mine mine was a little more subdued, uh, and I'm already leaning towards yours. I hate to show my hand this early. But uh, it's Power Girl. When she's in the hospital, uh, and she's she's recovering from surgery, and and Superman comes in to wake her up, and he's talking to her, and he goes, there's an accident. Save your strength. He's telling her to, to stay there and lay down and save her strength. Then later, Captain Adam comes in. He goes, how you feeling? And, and he starts to say, save your strength. And she says, now, come on, people. People keep waking me up to tell me to save my strength, which I found <laughs> that kind of funny. But it's not riotously funny like yours is. Yeah, yeah. No, that is a very good moment, Shag, I got to say. I think this is a no-brainer. I think we got to give it to Ralph and Wally telling stories about Barry. And I, th- yeah. I think that's what this is. Yeah, definitely. Um, but so, y- y- yours was definitely a good one, though, too. So I think this is going to be the one and only time in a JLI comic that we are going to award the Bwahaha Award to Barry. Barry Allen, posthumously. So, congratulations, Barry, uh, on winning the coveted Wahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. So, uh, Nicholas, I got to ask a favor. So, okay. with Kara's surgery over and Kilowog's already headed back to New York, I need someone to disassemble this giant Kirby Tech device at the hospital. I know you love Silver Age. I thought you're the ideal guy. They need their operating room back. Do you mind taking it apart and moving all the parts back to the embassy? This is just like you. You invite me over and then you put me to work? Yeah. You, you should have saw this coming in, man. I... You're right. You're right. Okay, fine. I'll do it. All right. I appreciate that. Now, don't worry, Nicholas. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while Nicholas is taking care of that for us, folks, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. All right, folks, before we get into your feedback, I just want to take a second to say thank you. I I really, really appreciate y'all. You know, and the the world is crazy right now. We all know this, right? This crazy world health crisis. Politics has driven everyone insane. And it's a time of a lot of strife. There's a lot of emotional hardship going on right now for everyone, I think. And the time we spend together, whether it's in the comments or on social media or wherever it is, you guys just really help me find a way to get away from the insanity of the world and to just have some fun and revel in something that brings us all joy. And you guys, you you fill my heart with joy. So I just wanted to say thank you. And I really appreciate that. Y'all are the best. 
So one more thing before we get into your feedback is uh, if you love the JLI, and I imagine if you've gotten this far into the podcast, you probably do, you might want to check out our Who's Who podcast. We just recently covered Who's Who in the DC Universe number 14. And on that episode, we uh, dived into Animal Man, Animal Man, by Brian Bolland, The Injustice League by Mike McCone, and Catherine Colbert by Terry Austin. It's pretty awesome. All right, now, folks, you know what you need to do. You need to get out on the social media. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast. And don't forget, leave your comments on our website as well. Because, you know, as I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments, and if you're outside the United States, let me know, and we'll assign you the appropriate embassy. Which is good to know, too, because if you're international, we have to filter your iTunes reviews to see those properly. Speaking of which, we've got an iTunes review from, well, I don't really know how to say this. Uh, it's a number of letters together. A-R-M-A-C-E-D. It might be arm aced. It may be arm aced. I'm not sure, but you know what? Thank you so much. They wrote, like seeing old friends again. I've loved the JLI since I first pulled them out of the back issue bin at my local comic shop back in the winter of 1992. This podcast has given me the great opportunity to read an issue a day, then follow up with the corresponding podcast episode. I can't wait to get to the Justice League Antarctica episode. Thanks for a great podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much, Arm Aced, or Arm Aced, or whatever it might be. Thank you so much, and welcome to the Embassy. Now, folks, if you haven't left an iTunes review yet, we would ask you, please take a moment to go out there and do that. It takes just a minute, and it really helps to raise the profile of the show, and we have new people finding the show every single month, and this plays a big part in it. And if you haven't left a review and you've chosen not to, I just might send Guy Gardner over to your house to do a little remodeling. Just saying. Alright, now we're going to get into your comments from our website, also on email and social media. We're just going to be pulling bits and pieces of it, because there's so much feedback. We'd be here forever. So we're going to be covering the most recent episode where we covered JLI appearances in the Mature Readers books that DC put out that were laying the foundation for the Vertigo imprint. With my co-host for that episode, Mike Garvey, Bradley Null, and Matt Ev. Now, here's a crazy thing. The comment section on our website for this episode got really unusually odd. It basically became an international invasion. We have comments from people in England. We have comments from people in Scotland. We have comments from people in Ireland. We have people from other undisclosed locations in the UK. We've got comments from Denmark and Canada and Australia and someone who used to be in Chile. It's a very few commenters from the United States this time. Very odd. Well, first up is, in fact, the Australian Australian Embassy, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast, also the DC OCD. He wrote great episode with some delightful guests. My nostalgia for all these books is so strong. I was buying all three of these series in my early days of reading comics. I can't believe it was 30 years ago because they all feel so fresh and new. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Really appreciate that. Then we heard from Tim Price. Now, here's something for you folks. Since we last talked to Tim, he has launched a new podcast. And this actually relates directly to us because if you're a Metamorpho fan, Metamorpho, Metamorpho, he has started a new podcast over on the Right On Network called The Outcasters, a brave and the bold podcast where they're focusing on the outsiders. So please be sure to check that out. So Tim writes, I was buying Paul Kupperberg's Doom Patrol and kept right into the Morrison's run without missing an issue. I might not have picked up this comic as a brand new series, so I count myself lucky to have gotten on board like that. Then regarding Animal Man, he writes, Animal Man number 9 was the first issue I bought of his comic. Yes, totally for the JLI connection, and Jean on the cover. I think the second issue I read was number 5. So yeah, filling in the rest happened pretty quickly. This issue was magic. First Morrison story, first Tom Grummet story work, delightful intro to Buddy and his family. I just loved it. Then he says, number 16 really hit me in the feels. Just a poignant take on superheroic's overly simplistic approach to conflict resolution. It took a second read for it to really sink in, which was a beautiful thing about Morrison's stories at the time. They were so different from the standard superhero fare, and it was an effort for my expectations
expectations to switch. So good. I didn't even mind how little Dimitri had to do. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim. Really appreciate it. Then we heard from Adam Ackerman from the Denmark Embassy. Adam writes, in defining the term scot-free, uh, the definition is completely free of obligation, harm, or penalty. And then Adam writes, when I read the Sandman issue, I didn't think about it the way you did. My two thoughts were, okay, scot-free, funny play on how he didn't get away scot-free from his name, and then wondering what naming conventions for new gods are. For example, do they have a kid's name, and then they get their real name when they're of age, like we see in some places, or some other naming convention? It's a good question. I wonder about that as well. I mean, what did they call him before he had the name Scott Free assigned? It's so strange, Adam. Hmm. Then we're from Mike Dynas from the Canadian Embassy. He says, as much as I am a fan of the Bwahaha JLI, I really enjoy these episodes that explore all those comics I never read with the JLI connection. At the time, I didn't pick up any of these titles because even then, I knew I wasn't smart enough for them. <laughs> and now hearing your excellent coverage of them, I'm still not sure I'm smart enough for them. But they sound a lot more appealing now. It really makes me want to dip my toe in and try some of these classic titles like Sandman and Animal Man. Aw, Mike, I think you're selling yourself short, buddy. I think you're probably a pretty bright guy. But uh, if you're looking for one that's maybe a little more approachable at a ground level, I'd say Animal Man is, pro Animal Man is probably the easiest one to as an entry point. They went from David A. Gutierrez, owner and operator of the Katana Banana. By the way, download their app, folks, so you can order in advance for your curbside pickup. David says, love me that Morrison run of Animal Man and Doom Patrol. And he says, Shag, did you stick around on Doom Patrol or Animal Man after Morrison left? If so, how long did you last? That's a good question, David. I did hang around it first on Doom Patrol uh, when Rachel Pollock took over. I didn't stay terribly long. Uh, she just wasn't my cup of tea. And, and and honestly, even Morrison towards the end of that run was already starting to boggle my mind. As far as Animal Man goes, I stuck around a long time. I stuck around probably, I'd say within a year of the book finally getting canceled. Uh, that long run when it went into Vertigo and you had, uh, oh geez, what, Peter Milligan and Jamie Delano and, uh, oh, Tom Veach and all these other writers and stuff. Yeah, so I, I, I stayed almost to the end. And then I picked up the New 52 book and stayed with that for quite a while as well. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy. By the way, Symbol Pending runs a blog of the same name, all about Power Girl. And they say Sandman was really one of those comics that got me into reading comics. The fabled unspoken of issue number six of Sandman is the one I remember catching my interest and uh, enjoying might be too strong a word considering it, but made me follow the rest of the series. I was only goth adjacent, though I was going through my vampire phase, and maybe one day I'll completely grow out of it. I love that phrase, goth adjacent. That is so funny. Uh, Symbol Pending goes on to say... I was just looking at the recently released Sandman audiobook, and it looks like they're including the segment you were talking about. You did it much better than them, obviously. Oh, well, I think you're being too kind, but thank you. Then Simple Penning says, I might be going crazy, but I remember that Animal Man, just like the JLI, were printed here in the UK as part of an anthology comic line. I'm fuzzy on which I read or then or later, but I've definitely hit all the well-known issues either way. Now, this interesting point they brought up ended up leading to a whole bunch of conversation on the message board, all of our British reprints of DC Comics. And, uh, Simple Penny, you may not realize this, so I'll let you know. Martin Gray is one of the people that responded to your question. Martin Gray, of course, is from our Scottish Embassy and does the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. Martin responded to your question and said, Yes, Animal Man appeared in the short-lived DC action comic from Egmont, UK. Now, here's the thing not everyone knows, Simple Penny. Martin Gray really, really knows what he's talking about. Because in the 90s, Martin actually worked for London Editions, or Egmont, on their monthly British editions of DC Comics material, including some Superman reprints and JLI reprints. In 
fact, if you go back and find those, you'll see his name listed as an editor on several of those editions. In fact, he mailed me a couple because he's just that awesome of a guy. So we've got a real authority here on DC Reprint Comics. Now, Martin shares some of, uh, of his own thoughts. Martin said, thanks for another epic effort. I bought Sandman from the start and much preferred it as a dark horror book with strong DCU connections. It was fascinating seeing the likes of Jean and Scott through Morpheus' lens. I loved Preludes and Nocturnes, The Doll's House, and Dream Country, but after that it became far too airy-fairy fantasy flaccid. <laughs> Ever the optimist I read to the end, when I really should have given up after the turrid A Game of You, or the first time they printed a goth girl's poem in the letter column. Oh my god, Martin. Uh, it, it, by the way, you guys can't tell in the editing, but this statement where he talks about the first time they wrote a goth girl's poem, it probably took me six tries to get that right in, in recording this, because I can't stop laughing, Martin. Thank you so much. Then we heard from Chris Franklin, from the, of course, from our Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as Batman Nightcast and the upcoming House of Franklinstein. He says, I don't own any of these comics, having only perused trades during my comic shop clerk days or at the library, so these moments uh, with the JLI didn't stick out in my cluttered mind. It is interesting to see how deeply set in the DCU Sandman initially was. The fact that Jean was so flippant about revealing where the powerful Ruby was seemed a bit odd, but the JLA was rather laid back back then, weren't they? Yeah, I guess that's true, Chris. Now, then again, uh, you know, Morpheus did just appear to him as as a god of his own planet, so he might be a little inclined to help him out. Then we heard from Siskoid, also from the Firewater Podcast Network and our Canadian Embassy. He does shows on our network such as Zero Hour Strikes, Gimme That Star Trek, and a whole bunch more. Siskoid writes, I read all those books, but the story I connected with the most is Doom Patrols and how it sent me in college straight to the library, getting interested in Dadaism specifically. I even self-published five issues of a comic called Dada, which was a kind of an exquisite corpse collage kind of thing. Very formative. You know, it's interesting how much uh, this storyline, the, the painting the ape Paris, and how much it pushed so many of us into researching Dada. It's very fascinating. I wonder if Grant Morrison realizes how many fans he drove to doing this research. Then we heard from Matt Ev from our Scottish Embassy. He was a guest on our last episode, and he used to run a blog called Ultron is My Elvis. And of course, we all know him from our Fire and Water Geek Fitness group, where he looks like he stepped right out of Game of Thrones. Matt says, One bit that got cut from the episode was that the unfortunate fate of the poodle in Animal Man number 16 is echoed in JLA Earth 2, one of my favorite Morrison books. There's a sequence in JLA Earth 2 in which the one true Green Lantern, Kyle, of course, saves a dog who is being kicked in the street. However, as they're on a world where evil triumphs, we see in subsequent panels, way in the background, almost imperceptibly tiny, that the poor dog has been squished by a passing bus. This was clearly a scripted moment in service of the wider story in themes. But I wonder if the less consequential dog squishing in Animal Man number 16 was just a throwaway addition by Truog. It's a good question, but it does make a nice parallel. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. Now, he starts off with a poem from William Butler Yeats entitled Among School Children. I'm going to try and do it justice, folks, but I probably won't. Uh, the poem goes, O chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O oh, body swayed to music, O oh, brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? Then he writes, Irish Embassy, mid-morning, and thus the rackety clack of noise on the keyboard denotes the musings of the representatives of the Gales in their eclectic gathering of those interested in the globalization of metahumans with their simplistic metahuman ways and how they intrude into real literature of graphic images with their disdain for the four-colored world, dot, 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 dot. Oh, sorry, went all over dizzy there. Think, think I might have had a case of vertigo there. Apologies. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. That was a pretty good Morrison impersonation. I'm impressed. So Jimmy goes on to say, I enjoyed the discussion with Mike on the Doom Patrol issues. 
The Painting That Ate Paris was the first Morrison Doom Patrol story that I picked up in trade paperback form, and I just feel it's probably one of the most accessible Morrison Doom Patrol tales. You know, Jimmy, I think I agree with you. Yeah, The Painting That Ate Paris really is, as you said, accessible to readers, and uh, it's, it's what got me into Doom Patrol, and uh, yeah, it's probably the most understandable of all those stories. He says the Animal Man story was very well done. The JLI had a cameo appearance earlier in Animal Man number one, with Buddy reading an article about the JLI contributing to Heroes Against Hunger and commenting that if Blue Beetle can get into the league, there's no reason why he couldn't. You know, you're absolutely right, Jimmy. I just reread Animal Man number one not too long ago, and that was in there. Good call. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswalt. Uh, Liz runs her own YouTube channel. Liz says, uh, next to Animal Man, uh, and he, yeah, I'm hearing y'all sing his name every time I type it. Uh, Jean looks great on the cover. He works well in the comic, too. I never thought of Jean as a beefy guy, so I like Tom Grummet's version better. It's like with Superman. I don't need them to look like Conan. Doesn't fit them. They're super strong, but don't look great when they're drawn like Prime. Well, I gotta tell you what, Liz. I gotta give you credit for a Ultraverse Prime reference, so thank you so much for that. That's awesome. Then we heard from Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey 2 podcasting network. Michael says, I never followed Vertigo back in the 90s due to the combination of being soundly judged by Vertigo readers for liking these silly superheroes and the fact that my sister, who made fun of my comic collecting, started picking up Sandman before the Vertigo imprint began. I was young and prone to rash final decisions, unlike now where I'm older and prone to rash final decisions. Anyway, long story short, too late, uh, I've come to terms with all of that and keep meaning to dive into these titles. This episode nudged me closer to that, and for that, I thank all involved. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. We're happy to help. Then we're from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary and also the Legion of Super Bloggers. Dr. Ange writes, As for Sandman, I got the first issue and thought, meh. Then much later, I was sort of bullied into reading it because everyone told me how awesome and intelligent it was. I started to read it and then read my buddy's trades to catch up. Solid book with solid writing. But it never wowed me to the point where I would tattoo a sigil on my body or write a letter saying how Sam had impacted my life in a crucial way. I suppose I was set up by all the lofty expectations doomed to be let down. But I would read those letter columns of people who were writing sonnets about despair and talking about quitting their jaws because of Sam and I was thinking, it's a comic book, people. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Ange. I appreciate that feedback. Then we're from Damian Whiter from the England Embassy. Uh, he hosts a podcast called Should I Love This Comic? You should check it out. Damian writes, In the UK in the late 1980s, comic book distribution was very different than the USA. Every newsagent would carry a selection of UK comics. Approximately only one in three newsagents would carry Marvel US comics. Of these Marvel stocking newsagents, only about half of those would also sell DC comics. Again, it was just the newsprint titles. But there would be the odd, rarer newsagent that got all the DC titles, including the new format and prestige books, and even sold books that were only available in comic shops in the U.S. The first time I discovered this was when my family moved to a nearby town of Hodison so my parents could run a bed and breakfast for some friends who had gone to Thailand for the winter. During this period, I was able to pick up loads of comics I'd never seen before, including Animal Man number 6 and 7. I was impressed. I enjoyed Morrison's work on Zoids for Marvel UK, and this was clearly even better. Damien goes on to say, Within the year, I found a part-time supermarket job that allowed me to earn while I was studying, and I started visiting London to visit comic shops and filling in my missing issues of these series. The specific issues you reviewed are all classics. I particularly love the way Sam Keith evokes Jack Kirby in Scott Free's dreams. Whenever I reread it, I wish that Sam Keith would do a fourth world project. I'm reminded of Sam's depiction of working on Sandman. He said he felt like Jimi Hendrix in The Beatles. I read that. <laughs> 
I read that description in an issue of Comics Interview decades ago. Well, thank you so much, Damien. appreciate you sharing that information. Then we heard from a new listener, Francisco Cortez. Francisco's in our Canadian embassy, but he's formerly of the Chile embassy. So awesome. Very international. Francisco writes, guys, I discovered this podcast a few weeks ago. What a great discovery. I've been a JLI fan since my childhood in Chile. I used to buy the edition published by Argentina, but that was years behind from the U.S. version. The first time I bought JLI, I had no idea who these characters were and what happened to the more classic ones like Superman or Wonder Woman. Then I started to understand the whole DC Universe and fell in love with this Justice League version. Then Francisco asked if we would please cover the JLI origin issues from Secret Origins. It's totally related and be instructive and fun. Well, you know, thank you, Francisco, for that suggestion. We do appreciate that. Now, I've messaged Francisco about this already, but just sharing with you guys, you know, here on the Firewater Podcast Network, we actually had a show uh, for quite a while called Secret Origins, hosted by our buddy Ryan Daly. And there, they covered the JLI issues of Secret Origins very much in depth. So we chose here to skip those Secret Origins issues, because again, they're already covered here on our network. Uh, So you can check out those episodes for fantastic coverage. Thanks so much. Then heard from Justin Steiner. Justin says, Just wanted to say that I appreciated this episode on a different level than usual. Normally I read the comics before I listen, but with the variety here and the fact that I have them all in trades and have read them multiple times over the years, I thought I could skip the rereading. I was not wrong. The conversations were just as enjoyable as always, and the context was always made clear. Excellent work by all. Aw, well thank you, Justin. It's very kind of you. Jake Perry messaged us to say the Animal Man crossover ends with one of my favorite exchanges from that period. And uh, he was referencing the, the part where Animal Man asked how Blue Beetle made it into the Justice League. Then we heard from Greg Holcomb says, my favorite scene was Maxine Baker calling Jean Marshmallow Hunter. <laughs> and then Gore Tolton from our Canadian embassy says, beautiful episode, but it didn't say Teasdale imperative enough to suit me or Ryan Daly. That's a bit of a gag because Ryan Daly was frustrated with that phrase. Then heard from Matthew Cody who was watching the old movie Witches was watching on Netflix and he spotted a Justice League poster on the wall in a bedroom in that movie. He said Witches is currently on Netflix and if you look at the 18 minutes and 57 seconds mark, in the upper left-hand corner, it's right there. And it's a great movie, too, he says. Now, this is the part of the show where we thank everybody who helped promote the podcast. Folks, uh, it's a long list of names. However, these people showed their support and helped get the word out there, meaning they shared it either on Facebook or Twitter. It only takes a second to do it, folks, but it means so much and really helps to spread the word and raise the awareness of the show. So this time out, we're looking at nearly 60 names of people who helped promote the last episode. Our thanks go out to Andrew at No False Prophet, Baby Skeletor, Between the Pages, BGCP Comic Con, Bill Beer, Billy Delicious, Bradley Knoll, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Collected Editions, Comic Book Addicts, Damian Drowett-Whiter, David Capoon, David Gallagher, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine, Ed Moore, Fan Film Friday's podcast, Film and Water podcast, Green Lantern HG, It's Plastic Man, Jeff Messer, Jeff Poyer, Jeffrey Brown, Connell, Liz Ann Oswald, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Mashcast, Matt Ev, Max Romero, Michael Kramer, Mike Dynas, Mike Garvey, Nathaniel Devon Sanford, Nuno Duarte, Paul Kean, Pragmatic Gollum, Rad Adventures, Relatively Geeky, Richard Field, Richard Dent, Rob Kelly, Rod Pruitt, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sam Lowe, Scott Tingley, Sean Ross in the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, The 108th Sage, The Mirror Factory, Tim Price, Ultron is My Elvis, Warlock Thanos Podcast, and Warlord Worlds. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. And I meant what I said at the top of the section, guys. Just communicating with you guys and the friendship and the community that surrounds this show and just around the JLI in general, it just it really fills my heart with joy. And I gotta say thank you again. And your feedback 
Tech is such a critical part of the show, folks, and the community of JLI fans we're building together, as I always say, is fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I'm very, very sorry. It was probably the fault of Mike Garvey, Bradley Null, or Matt Ev. If so, just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming. Remember, our website is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and that's where most of the messages are coming from. So check that out. There's a comment section. It's very active. So we want to hear from you. Leave your comments there. Or you can hit us up on Facebook. It's the JLI Podcast or Just League International Blahaha Podcast. And on Twitter, we're the JLI Podcast. Our email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Mike Garvey, Bradley Null, and Matt Ebb for appearing on the most recent episode. And my thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback on that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see if we can bring David and Nicholas together in the same embassy. Hey folks, Nicholas Prom here. I'll bet you thought I was dead or something. Well, the reports of my demise, or retirement rather, have been greatly exaggerated. Joined by my new co-host, Kurt Lloyd, Comic Reflections is back and better than ever. Coming at you from the Island Station Media Lab in Portland, Oregon, tune in for jokes and insights on comic book history as Kurt and I, and sometimes a guest, tackle a single issue from the Silver or the Bronze Age each and every week. You'll find Comic Reflections on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Podbean. The Justice League wouldn't help him, so Batman formed a new team. These people of power are all looking for something, be it their past, or a purpose, or simply somewhere to fit in. These are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders! Covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning, as they face villains no other team can, like Agent Orange, the Force of July, and the Nuclear Family. (laughs) Puns. This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehuntresspodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are The Outcasters, because to live outside the law, you must be honest. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought both David and Nicholas together for us. First, David, thank you so much for appearing on this episode and sharing your insight on writing Guy Gardner. So can you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the internets? You can find me on the internets at davidgallaher.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-G-A-L-L-A-H-E-R.com. And then you can also find me on Twitter at David Gallaher. I'm on Facebook. I'm on the uh, Instagram. And you can also uh, find my books at our website, Bottled Lightning, B-O-T-T-L-E-D hyphen lightning or at Amazon or your comic book shop. We have The Only Living Girl available now, volumes one and two, as well as The Only Living Boy Omnibus. And Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint is available now. 
And folks, if you haven't tried Only Living Boy or Only Living Girl, clearly you've made some poor life decisions because you love 80s comics. That's why you're listening to this thing anyway. So you love the 80s. You love adventure. This thing is steeped in 80s uh, love and joy, and yet it still feels current and modern. It's, it's absolutely fun. You've got to check it out. So thank you again, Dave, for being on the show. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Now, Nicholas, man, it has been so great catching up and chatting with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Now, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the internet? I am all that is the internet. I can be found everywhere in all the places. <laughs> um, Comic Reflections, which is sort of a going concern, is, has its own feed on uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly the show I'm doing right now is We're Having a Crisis, Tales of the DC Multiverse, which is on that feed. I also have my music podcast, Captain Freakout, Psychedelic Radio, which also you can find in those same places. Yeah, that's about that's that's the places to find me. I'm on the Twitter and the Instagram and all everywhere. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Nicholas. I really appreciate it. And I loved you sharing that this was your first Justice League comic. That's so cool. Oh, this is great. This has been a long time coming, Shag. I had a, had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Now, folks, that is going to do it. Come back next episode when we cover Justice League America number 34 and Justice League Europe number 10. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm David Gallagher. And I'm Nicholas. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? Exciting and new. Come Come aboard. We're We're expecting you. And love. Life's sweetest reward. Let it flow. It floats back to you. Love boat. Soon we'll be making another run. The love boat promises something for everyone. Set a course for adventure. Your mind on a new romance and love. Won't hurt anymore. It's an open smile on a friendly shore. Yes, love. <laughs> That's enough.